Hello. Hi. 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 Uh, hi. So welcome back, everybody. <laughs> what if we just kept saying hi back just and hi. forth to each other? Hi. 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 Okay. <laughs> I, I'm already irritated. <laughs> it makes me think of, is it in a 40-year-old virgin where he's, at, is it in that movie? No, 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 no. It's in Forgetting Sarah Marshall when he like takes a girl home from the club or whatever and they're having sex. And she's oh, like, yeah. hi. And he's like, hi. And then she just keeps going, hi. And he's like, hi. But imagine if it was like, hi, hi, hi. Yeah. I mean, at that point, I'd be like, okay, this is clearly something. This is clearly some kind of a, I don't know, like an introduction kink or something that you right. have. Awesome. Anyway, I'm Anyways, Scotty Milder. I'm Amelia Ampuero. And uh, we're back uh, for another episode of this fucking thing. And uh, <laughs> so <laughs> it's also real late at night and where I think of both a little punchy. <laughs> uh, I, that's the new name of the podcast. This yeah. fucking thing. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we are back for another episode of The Weirdest Thing. It is officially The Weirdest Thing because I'm back in mm-hmm. the 505. We were going to do updates. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, how how... How was uh, the rest of your time in Abingdon? There? Yeah, great. It was it was a lot of fun. I met a lot of like really cool people. I think some of them might be listening to this podcast. And if you are, hi everyone. So glad you're here. Yeah, it was great. It was really great. Abingdon is like this. Like, I mean, you know, you saw it. It's like this yeah. teeny little American town. Um, it's very Norman Rockwell. Like, yeah, yeah yeah and it was you know and i got to do a lot of cool stuff aside from the acting you know i got to like go i got to go boating and i you mm-hmm. know got to do that kind of stuff and i'm about to sneeze sorry Donya. <coughs> there we go um I'm just gonna leave that in fantastic please do uh yeah and and you know it was really cool and an absolute trip to go back to this place that I went to for the first time nearly 20 years ago when I was mm-hmm. a wee lass. Yeah. Yeah. Glad to be back. <laughs> I'm very glad to be back. New Mexico is just so my home. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I was about to be like, I wish I could quit you, but I don't. I actually really love New Mexico. I love living in New Mexico. I love living in Albuquerque for all of its weird quirks mm-hmm. and uh, you know, kind of, kind of craziness. I really do love this stupid city. <laughs> so I'm very glad to be back. I have been not even trying to like responsibly consume. I have been like consuming green and red chili at, at an alarming mm-hmm. rate. Uh, I might, I might be turning into a green chili, but <laughs> you know, it's what you do, what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah. How uh, was your summer? <laughs> well, it was mostly uneventful until the very end, like literally right when you got back, I finally got COVID. It was um, literally, I got back on a Wednesday and by like Friday or Saturday, you were like, I have COVID. Yeah. No, I think I got, I think I got COVID the Tuesday before the Wednesday that you got back. Yeah. So the like, day before. Yeah. As I was driving through Arkansas and Oklahoma. Right. Yeah. Cause I went to a concert and you know, roll the dice came up snake eyes, but you know, it wasn't yeah. that bad. 
uh, the worst part was it fucked up my back. Uh, yeah. I guess this is a thing with uh, Omicron is it's like giving people back problems, which is super like this is just the weirdest fucking virus. It's a very strange virus that, uh, you know, we still don't. We don't know anything about it, yeah. uh, really and truly. And there's some pretty there's some pretty spooky stuff that continues to come up about it. I went to a fetish burlesque show this weekend. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, was plenty worried about the COVID, but well, yeah, because it's sold out, and I know the venue, so it's like, yeah, I'm sure that was pretty packed. Yeah, it was, but it's. I mean, but also that venue is not actually that big and that's what i'm saying and like the way the way that that particular show works is a good chunk of the i guess like floor space was rows of seats for the vip for like the people who bought Mm -hmm. vip tickets so actually there wasn't actually that much room for that many people so it didn't it wasn't really that packed i think they were just like we're done we're yeah. we're done. Yeah, letting people in. Right. And it's still but it's a small indoor space. And uh, where I saw the concert was uh not much bigger. Where and did they you did see the concert? At Sister Bar. Um, oh yeah. And I mean, and I should I should clarify, like I think I got it like time frame it makes sense i got it at that concert but i don't know that for sure i haven't heard of anyone else from the concert getting it or anything Mm -hmm. but uh it was like three days later i was like oh wait i don't i don't feel good and then uh sure enough took the test came up positive yep Yep. my covid quote-unquote symptoms were were pretty manageable but unfortunately i do already have like a couple fucked up discs in my back and it just like was like let's just run rampant through your spine so that was yeah that was miserable but the rest is of it, it was not bad is it like that from what you've seen of the covid back stuff is it like what is it is it just that it's causing inflammation so if you if you have a back problem that's it's what i think well i i think it's a little unclear but it sure seems like if you already have uh issues in your back it's the inflammation mm. because what it did i have two uh and this is like getting like old manny fucking all my fucking ailments but i have two discs in my lower back like one on top of the other that are fucked up and they're both mm. hitting the uh sciatic nerve on each side uh-huh. normally i only have like one of those discs fucked up at a time this time mm. it was both and it was hitting both sciatic nerves and it was the most agonizing pain i think i've ever like it was like intolerable like it was uh, actually intolerable pain. Yeah. I had to go to the the doctor a few times. Rode in an ambulance because I thought I ruptured my uh, disc. Yep. Yep. So, that was times. also that was also the funniest thing because you had sent me that text that was like, "Hey, can you do a thing?" And I was like, "What? What?" <laughs> you were like, "Uh, I went to the emergency room last night," and I was like, "We gotta go like." all the way back yeah let's rewind (laughs) yeah we i i need way more information than you're trying to get away with giving me right now yeah um but i'm glad you're on the mend yeah now i'm uh, all all's good now but yeah it was Mm -hmm. a that was a miserable couple weeks yeah Um, yeah so for all you people still getting COVID out there even you boosted and everything i i feel i feel for you i can literally say i feel your pain now so yeah and also just you know be careful especially if you're on the had it more than once train uh mm-hmm. again i'm not trying to like well i haven't said this yet but i'm not trying to fear monger or anything but but we really don't know this virus. yeah well we just don't 
don't know long-term effects and be careful yeah like yeah. i'm uh i'm back to like if i go to uh events or anything i'm probably back to wearing a mask at least for a while mm-hmm. so you know mm-hmm. just i don't really want to go through that again so <laughs> yeah yeah uh but you um, are riding that immunity for a little bit so yeah yeah i know but like you said we don't know much about this virus so i'm just not trusting much, yeah but. absolutely but at the same time, I like you say, you don't want to fear monger. Like, and like, I came through it okay. If, if it hadn't been for the back thing, it would have been sort of a moderate cold, I yeah. would say. Yeah. Like, as far as the respiratory stuff, I'd say it was like a moderate cold, a pretty gnarly cough that stuck around for a couple of weeks. But, mm-hmm. but it was that bad. It was the, the inflammation in my back was the, the worst part. So, yeah. But anyway, we're we're all we're back in town. We're both fit up. <laughs> we're <laughs> we're good here. To go. We were um, also uh, real lazy this week and didn't want to do research, so we've got another movie themed uh, discussion. Episode. Hold up, you can't <laughs> say that. You can't say that we were lazy. You sure, had sure. family in town, and that I just true. started rehearsing my new show. So there was a lot <laughs> going on. It's not like we had nothing, well, and then we were just like, you know what? Like, let's just, just uh, not even classic. Like, do it uh, to go along with my movie. That was just some uh, classic Jewish self deprecation there, but. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm like, then put it to yourself, okay? Yeah. I'm over here living up to the Latina stereotype <laughs> of making shit happen and being a boss. So right. <laughs> <laughs> please do that. Okay, yeah, you want to talk about what uh, yeah. what we're doing with these a-holes this time? Yeah, so this is just uh, something we've talked about with our, you know, movie talk episodes is, you know, I think our, our movie tastes overlap somewhat, but we definitely have like areas where they do where the venn diagram does not cross so yes the idea was basically like each of us suggest a movie that we know the other one probably wouldn't watch in normal circumstances um, <laughs> and that's what we did mm-hmm. so yep that's what we did yeah so um, you want to talk about the movie you picked yes but are we gonna are we gonna go right into it or are we talking about movies i think we should talk about your movie first Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause uh I think go from the the darker movie to the maybe somewhat less dark. I think so. Yeah. So okay. Well the movie I picked was to go along not to not to spoil too much about your movie, but you picked a very Latin American themed movie. I did. That is among your favorites. And so this is a very Jewish movie that's among my favorites. So I picked the Coen Brothers classic, I wanna say from ninety one or ninety two. Did not I'm gonna look tell up you date. right now. It's their fourth film. I know that. Uh Barton Fink. It is 1991. 1991. Yeah, it was. They made this movie kind of, I guess the story was they were working on Miller's Cross, the script for Miller's Crossing, which is their third film. Mm-hmm. Uh, got kind of stuck because if you've ever seen Miller's Crossing, it's like super complicated. They got kind of stuck on the script. So they were like, fuck it. And I think in like a week, they just wrote Barton Fink. And then right, they did they, it right after. Right. And I saw somewhere that people were like, oh, they had writer's block. And they were like, it wasn't a block. It's yeah. just that, like we needed to kind of like. Yeah, I think it was more like clear the cobble. It was just like the, the script for Miller's Crossing was so convoluted. They were just like, we need a yeah, break. Yeah. And that they then yeah. churned this one out real fast. Yeah. So uh, do you, since you watched it, was this the first time you'd ever seen it? Yes. Do you want to sort of tell us a little bit what it was about? Yeah. I mean, I think that this is a hard movie to talk about what it's about. um, Yeah. And by the way, I think as always, particularly for my movie, I don't know how you feel about your movie. Uh, let's just like full spoilers. I don't think you can talk about Barton Fink without spoilers. So yeah, if you haven't seen it, like take a pause. I, yeah, I guess it's also 
like 31 years old. So <laughs> yeah, but yeah, exactly. And, and I don't think like, yes, I guess there's spoilers, but I don't think it's not like we're going to, it's not like we're spoiling psycho. You know what I mean? No, but it's it like does, the it movie does, hinges. Yeah. It does have a twist at the end. So I'm just saying we'll, we'll, we'll spoil. I'm going to say that's debatable, but <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Barton Fink it centers around playwright, Barton Fink. Uh, mm-hmm. And the movie opens with him in New York. He's a New York playwright. And and it's basically he's backstage at his newest, like, I, I don't know, like opening night, I guess, of his right. newest play. Um, I saw some stuff that said that it was like his, that there was something about it being like his last play or something like. No, I, I don't, don't think. I think it's more like his first big play yeah yeah i i i I don't know but so he's there and then you know he's like celebrating and blah 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 but of course he can't because he's a writer um (laughs) and y'all are never happy right so So, uh and then he's he's like at a bar or a restaurant or something afterwards they're all waiting for the reviews to come out and blah 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 and someone i'm not sure i don't remember who it was exactly but it's basically like you should go to la yeah and so then he does uh yeah and it's like the only thing to say about it at this point afterwards like in in terms of a brief synopsis is he goes to la and shit gets real weird gets real weird yeah yeah so uh so what'd you think what was your just like broad stroke impression for one thing i guess i've never asked you what is your opinion of the Cohen brothers um i don't know that i have an opinion okay The Coen brothers have always sort of existed in this realm of like, you know, like I've seen, seen Raising Arizona. I've seen Fargo. Mm-hmm. Um, did they do three billboards? No, that was Martin McDonough. Okay. Yeah. N- but no, but he, wait, what? Yeah, they didn't do three billboards. Who directed it? I think Martin McDonough. Really? Yeah. I'm let's, gonna, let's fact gonna, check this. Yeah, but fact I'm check that. I'm like 99.9% sure that i'm right i guess i just feel because right because one of them is married to francis mcdormand right right yeah and i I guess i just figure if she's in something they're involved right (laughs) which might be unfair yeah so i think they've always uh three but but sorry uh written co-produced and directed by martin mcdonough oh huh interesting okay so but like i've seen some of their movies but i think they've always sort of existed in this realm of like not really for me Mm. Um, and I don't mean anything like exclusionary by that. I don't mean like they're like, they're not making movies for me. It's just that there's not a ton in their movies that like speaks to me. Uh-huh. So I can sort of like watch the movies and be like, huh. And recognize that it's, you know, they've definitely got a point of view. There's definitely something that they're trying to say, but I don't know that I'm like super inspired to like fall mm. into it and be like, but what does it all mean? Right. I think out of probably all other movies, this would be the one that would pro- would maybe like speak to me the most on account of my weird sort of old timey Hollywood obsession. That's part of why I picked it. Yeah. 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 We should say it takes place. Um, I don't think it's ever said for sure, but you would say like early 1940s kind of right on the eve of World War II. Yes. Yeah. And then, like I said, stuff gets stuff gets real weird. Yeah. So what, so what did you think of this movie in particular? Like, just in broad strokes. I mean, I think the thing is, is that, like, I'm not going to lie. It kind of felt when I was watching it like I was high when I was watching it. <laughs> like, stuff would happen, and I was like, is it? Yeah. Is this really happening? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. am I hallucinating this? Or, like, <laughs> what is happening here? Movie stars John Totoro, who's always 
a wonderful actor. I think kind of actually like criminally underrated. Um, yeah. He's just always quietly good in even everything. In, even in like the Transformers movies, which is in like at least a couple of those. <laughs> he's he's like the he's by far the best thing in those movies in Mm -hmm. terms of a performance yeah yeah and it's interesting too because like right at the beginning you know he's backstage in the wings during his play Mm -hmm. while his play is being performed and i was watching it you know you hear like it's a shot and it's just on john totoro's face on barton's face and like the play is clearly coming to a close and you hear what I assume to be the main character speak the last line of the play and then like thunderous applause. And it was mm-hmm. so funny because the minute that I was like, that's John Turturro. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's John Turturro's voice doing that line. Mm-hmm. Um, and made me think of uh, another brilliant, brilliant performance by John Turturro in The Cradle Will Rock, not yeah. The hand that rocks the cradle, which is something right. that everybody fucking asks me when I mention this movie. No, Not, they're very different movies. <laughs> yes, very, very different movies. Cradle Rock is a wonderful, also like completely ignored film that not very many people know about. And somehow mm-hmm. has a literal cast of thousands. Right. Like Tenacious D is in it. Bill Murray is in it. Cherry mm-hmm. Jones is in it. Uh, John Turturro, Hank Azaria, Emily Watson. Carrie Elway's, uh, like so many people are in this movie, uh, mm-hmm. Susan Sarandon, John Cusack, and it's all about the WPA and the Federal Theater Project. It is a right. wonderful, wonderful movie. And in that, you get to see John Turturro do stage acting and film acting, and it's just mm-hmm. a, a, a beautiful piece of work on his right. part. I agree with you. I think he, just in general, he's a criminally underrated actor. And one that, what I love about about his performance in Barton Fink because I think mm-hmm. it, like a lot of people know John Turturro if you're a film geek a lot of people are going to know John Turturro through his um, Coen Brothers movies he's been in Miller's Crossing he plays Bernie Birnbaum in Miller's Crossing he plays Jesus in uh, The Big Lebowski uh-huh. um, and he tends to play these pretty over the top very character actory roles and that's a thing you get in a in i mean you get it in barton fink you know yeah. it's, when you're dealing with black comedy you know you tend to get these kind of big sort of kind there's of caricaturish like a, kind of roles well i think what's interesting is that there is it's interesting because i'm just coming out of the rehearsal uh for this new show that i'm working on but there is an element of like clown I mm-hmm. feel like in so many Coen Brothers movies right. so that it, it like elevates them from the realm of a caricature. Like they are very like real people, but they exist in a but world that but, like yeah. th- well, that is and, smaller than they are. And they do uh, the Coen Brothers very much. And it's a thing I, want, I do want to talk about with Barton Fink play with stereotypes mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. um, and a lot. And they they'll present a stereotype in ways where then they kind of will in, either invert the stereotype or sort of throw something weird or unexpected into the stereotype. But they, they're very clearly fascinated by like a surface presentation of a type of person. You get this in Fargo with like the stereotypical Minnesota nice. And yeah, you know. I think that that's like, it's very clear, which is why I was like, I want to, I want to delineate this from like caricature because mm-hmm. they are, like I said, they are fully formed characters right and and i think that you hit it on the head when you said that there is a surface presentation exactly the characters all go much 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 deeper than that 
I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not. Well, we'll, we'll talk about the character in a little bit. But um, Lipnick, the studio boss in this, is. I'm not sure how deep he goes, but but he's again, he's a very classic. So, have I ever told you the definition of black comedy that my screenwriting instructor from Boston University told me like 20 years ago? I don't think so. Um, so know. you know, he he basically said if you think about any sort of standard story any standard Mm -hmm. narrative the whole goal is to make you empathize with one or more of the characters right Mm -hmm. is to create that bridge between us the audience and the character on screen a sense of human empathy human understanding Mm -hmm. and he says black comedy is the opposite it's the whole and and this is how he differentiated black comedy from dark comedy and i think he used the movie fargo as an example where he said fargo starts as a black comedy and turns into a dark comedy he said the whole idea in a black comedy is not to create a sense of empathy for the characters, but actually to create a sense of content. And the person you're mm. empathizing with is the author. And you're both sitting on the outside being like, look at these fucking people. And that's a black comedy? That's a black, like a black comedy is all about contempt. Whereas mm. a dark comedy can be dark, but there's still empathy in it. So that's why, why he said Fargo starts as a black comedy. But mm. once you bring in Marge, all of a sudden we have a character we can empathize with. Right. And then it becomes dark comedy. But if you look at like another Coen Brothers film, uh, Burn After Reading, like that's a pure black comedy. You know? Oh God, yeah. Yes, I forgot I saw that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. everybody in that, you're like, what? Right. <laughs> who, am I, who am I supposed to be rooting yeah, for? Yeah, no, you're supposed to actually, I mean, you're literally supposed to hate everybody or at least feel contempt. And this has been a criticism the Coen brothers have gotten through their whole career. But mm-hmm. from my perspective, it's like, but that's the point in some of these movies. And what I like about Barton Fink and John Turturro's performance is, like I said, so he's played these kind of heightened characters in uh, other Coen brothers movies. What I like is that even though Barton, there's something very stylized about Barton, Turturro finds this very human core in that character. Yeah. And I mean, like, it's it's interesting, too, because, like, I mean, the guy barely says anything. Mm-hmm. Sort of in the movie as a whole, but, like, especially in the first, I don't know, like, 10, 15 minutes, mm-hmm. he's, like, uttering, you know, like, one sentence here and there and he right. and, and is just sort of like dealing with everything that is like swirling around, around him. him yeah so he goes to he goes to la barton goes to la and he lands at this hotel the hotel earl mm-hmm. and yeah then just proceeds to like fall into a, a hollywood experience and a rather like nightmarish one at yeah. that it's very much it's 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 a literal descent into hell yeah which had me like it did have me wondering like I was like and not that this is necessarily like a reflection on how the Coen brothers feel about Hollywood but I was like do you love Hollywood or do you hate Hollywood (laughs) and I think that's an open question with them because I think you know they're very much I think I would say they probably have a love-hate relationship with Hollywood and they've always been somewhat even though they've been like critically adored uh through a lot of their career there's always been kind of an outsider aspect to them Mm -hmm. um you know they're not quote hollywood filmmakers at least not until maybe the last decade or so they were very Uh much part of that 90s indie yeah boom of like tarantino and robert rodriguez and yeah you know they started you know working with like sam raimi back in like the evil dead days and stuff so Mm -hmm. So it's it's hard to call this like a love like you and I saw Hail Caesar together. Oh God, yeah, that's right. Uh, 
which is their other kind of big Hollywood movie. And that's much more of a kind of a love letter to Hollywood. But even then, it's still like, hey, guys, like, look, remember how great like Hollywood was back in the heyday? And they were all <laughs> awful. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's like, I think that's, that's a really interesting, like juxtaposition. Is it like you meet mm-hmm. anybody, whether it's Mayhew, right? WP yeah. Mayhew or, you know, the studio exec that you were talking about or anything. And it feels like it's like it it is positioned in this thing of like, oh my God, it, it, it's, it's this like, you know, like meeting your idols type of thing. that's like elevated people, but then they're mm-hmm. just like the, 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 yeah. And the facade cracks so quickly with everybody. Right. And like, so just to give a little bit more like plot. So yeah, he, please. he arrives in LA, he's told by his agent, like he's had this big, massive success on Broadway. And by the way, Barton, the Barton Fink character is supposedly based on the playwright Clifford Odets. Mm-hmm. Clifford um, Odets, who looks like if Mike Myers decided to go as John Totoro in right. Barton Fink for Halloween. <laughs> for Halloween. Yeah, that's a guy. I looked up a picture of him and I, I hadn't thought of it quite in those terms, but you're 100% right. <laughs> that's what he looks like. We'll post a pic. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. Um, but so he's told to go out to Hollywood to like make his money, basically. And he's, you know, because he's like a socially conscious you know he's he's that like 1930s you know east coast jewish leftist playwright you know mm-hmm. he's yeah, writing, writing about like labor struggles and writing about the common man common you know? man yes um and so what is the agent says like the common man will be here when you get back you know <laughs> but basically go make your money so he goes out to la he gets on with a studio run by a guy named jack lipnick mm-hmm. who is very and I, it's very interesting that this is coming from jewish filmmakers but he is very much the caricature of the jewish studio boss from that time period Mm -hmm. um who you know he wants that quote barton fink feeling and you know and he's just he's he's kind of loud and 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 like a little bombastic uh you know like bossy Mm -hmm. Um, but he's also he's like shining barton on he's just like you know he's telling barton how much you know the writer is king here and blah 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 and like i've got to ask you like you knew from almost the first time they interact that like, oh, this isn't going to end well. Right. I mean, I, so, and that's why I was like debatable and talking about the spoilers is because from the moment he steps into the hotel, there is a sense of, I don't know if foreboding is exactly the Mm -hmm. right word, but it's this thing of like, something's not right. Things are weird in a way that doesn't feel like anything could happen. It feels like anything could fucking happen. And yeah, yeah, there's this weird like edge under everything that Mm -hmm. I spent most of it. Like finally, when we, when it got to the thing that you're talking about, that is the spoiler. I was like, well, finally, yeah, of course. Right. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, you're right. It's, it's a twist in that. Like you don't know literally what's going to happen, but when it happens, you're kind of like, yeah, that tracks. Um, this is, I mean, I think, you know, Barton Fink is usually, uh, classified as a black comedy and I would, Mm. I wouldn't really argue with that, but I think up until they did no country for old men, this is probably the closest they've ever done to a horror movie. And there's a lot, particularly with the Hotel Earl. Yeah. That feels very, almost like gothic horror. It's like it's like when Renfield arrives at Dracula's mansion kind of Right. Yeah, yeah. It's it. there's like this underlying of like something ominous, mm-hmm. um, which is weird because you've got the like glamour and 
uh, I don't want to say glitz because that's not really part of it, but it, you know, there, there's this like Hollywood sheen to it, mm-hmm. but it's also clearly like the rot is, is immediately yeah. evident. In that sense, this movie kind of reminds me of uh, David Lynch's Blue Velvet, which hmm. like there's the famous opening shot. I don't know if you've ever seen Blue Velvet, but there's the famous opening shot, Blue Velvet, which is like small town America. It's very, it's very like Twin Peaksy in a way. And it's like you hear the song playing and you have the camera like panning to all these beautiful picturesque mm-hmm. neighborhoods. And you see like a fire truck go by and the fire man is waving and you see a guy watering his lawn and it's just like so idyllic. And then the guy watering the lawn suddenly like collapses from a heart attack. This he's on the ground, basically dying with the water spraying. The camera goes down into the dirt and you see all the beetles and stuff eating each other. Mm. And it's very much that like, this is the rot and decay underneath the surface. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's the hotel Earl. And- well, I think also too, as somebody who, you know, has gone to Disney world, a fair amount of times and mm-hmm. spent a fair amount of time in the Hollywood tower of terror, uh, <laughs> <laughs> both waiting in line and on the ride. I think that was the thing is that the second he walked into the hotel, I was like, it's a fucking hotel from the ter- like tower of terror. Mm-hmm. Like that is exactly. And, you know, not to get off on like a Disney tangent here. And I, oh, that, <laughs> and that, that ride doesn't exist anymore, which makes me oh, really? really sad. Oh, no, it's the, it's a guardians of the galaxy ride oh, now. Okay. Um, Cause it was the, it was the twilight zone tower of terror. Right. And- I, I remember writing that and. In- like 20 some years ago whenever I was yeah. yeah and so you would walk in the whole story and like the imagineers did a really great job with that ride because you know they started doing a thing i don't know when which would be an interesting episode in and of itself but they started doing a thing where they were like people are waiting in line at these rides sometimes for hours like we need to give them something to do and so the whole story of the tower of terror is old hotel you know from like the beginning of hollywood and one night i think it's like five passengers get into the elevator when the the tower that houses the elevators is struck by lightning and then Mm -hmm. those five people die in the elevator accident and they now haunt the hotel but it's like Mm -hmm. when you walk in the ride is built like the hotel has been like just everybody left and just left everything where it is. So there's like glasses, like sitting Mm. on a, on like the hotel register. And there's like, you know, somebody's hotel key and like a pair of gloves and that, and it's, it's this very, like, this was once something very grand and now it's starting to like decay. And that's, that's immediately, I was like, that's the fucking, that's the hotel that we're at right now. Yeah. Already something is wrong. Yeah. Well, and there's some very specific like visual references to kind of let you know that this is literally supposed to be represent hell in some way. One is like when Barton first comes up to the front desk and rings the bell. Mm. Uh, where does Steve Buscemi emerge? He like come literally comes up out of the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, his trap door swings open. You see him come up out of the floor. So it's like there's this underbelly to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, another real subtle thing is every time you see the only time you're ever actually in the hotel's elevator is when mm-hmm. it's going down. So mm-hmm. you'll see him go get into the elevator and the door will shut. And then it's like he gets off on the sixth floor, which is where his room is. But the only time you actually see him in the elevator, it's very visibly like descending. Mm-hmm. So there's just this constant feeling of you're constantly sinking. You're constantly going down. Mm-hmm. Um, the way the, the production design is like painted to literally look like putrefied flesh. Like, yeah. That's what the walls are meant to look like. Yeah. Know? And so it's, it's also, just a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was weird. Cause I like, it's funny because 
I don't know, maybe this is like latent Catholicism coming out, but it was interesting because like, I could tell that that's kind of what they were going for. But for me, I was like, this actually doesn't feel like hell yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, It actually felt like a sort of like purgatory, like a weird in. Uh, Yeah. It's it's the descent to hell. Yeah. Where we arrive at the end of the movie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I can see the the kind of purgatory because it's this weird negative space too. Like you don't really you never see, see anyone anybody else, there else except, except for, for one person. Except for Chet and the right, that's the bellboy. Chet is the bellboy, Steve Buscemi, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Barton's neighbor, which I guess we can get to now if you want to. Yeah. Uh Charlie Meadows. Um, yes. So this is, I think, I mean. When people point to like the best John Goodman in a Coen Brothers movie performance, everyone mm-hmm. always talks about Walter and the Big Lebowski, and I love I love that character. Um, mm-hmm. But I personally, I would take Charlie Meadows. He's he's my favorite Goodman character. Yeah, and I feel like this is John Goodman is such a curious star to mm-hmm. me because especially like the second he popped on screen i was like yay you know <laughs> even though yeah. i even though there's you know something underneath there i was still like yay <laughs> um and he i mean again somebody i think who's who's terribly underrated um mm-hmm. and would have been you know like i mean a little bit of his like thank god he got in with the cohen brothers because i think i don't know I, that hollywood would have exactly known what to do with him otherwise. yeah i mean i think he was doing some stuff but before the sitcom roseanne you know i think the cohen's were the ones who kind of really put him on the map yeah like raising arizona and stuff like that yeah and i would love to know what his background is uh like pre-Hollywood mm-hmm. because he's just he's really a, a wonderful actor and again like I said I'm, I'm glad the Coen brothers kind of got their hooks in him because mm-hmm. um, I think you know we might not have had the the wonder that is John Goodman um, yeah. but yeah he's just it's the interesting thing to me about John Goodman is that regardless of the character he's playing and he has played some not nice characters mm-hmm. is that I instantly like him i'm instantly like i'm instantly like more john goodman more john goodman (laughs) you know well and like a couple filmmakers have really used that to their advantage Mm -hmm. to like kind of play against that immediate sort of just want to hang out with him vibe you get from Mm -hmm. john goodman one is the coen brothers and barton fink where Mm -hmm. they kind of use that against you Mm -hmm. and then the movie what is it the the 10 cloverfield lane uh from a few years ago yeah yeah where they kind of take your inherent trust in John Goodman and mm-hmm. really kind of fuck with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even when he's playing Walter in The Big Lebowski, and I think you haven't seen The Big Lebowski. I think you told me that. Um, mm-hmm. But just about everyone on Earth probably has, so they'll know what I'm talking about. But, you know, that character's so abrasive and obnoxious, but he's John Goodman, so you still like him, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so Charlie in Barton Fink is like... Well, you... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say we meet him because Barton is in his room in that weird ass room. Mm. <laughs> I think that's the other thing <laughs> the too. Is that he wallpaper. Has this, yeah. He has this like super weird experience of checking in. Like he rings the bell and the bell just keeps ringing mm-hmm. until Steve Buscemi comes out of the guts of the hotel through a trap door behind the front desk and puts his finger on the bell so i mean it's Mm -hmm. stuff like that that it's like already we're dealing with it's just unsettled something yeah yeah so barton gets into his room and he's like looking around there's like one sad bed 
yeah (laughs) a desk with a chair the windows like i think look out directly to another building like Mm. there's no view to speak of and the only thing in this room is this picture painting of a girl and it's like the girl has her back to you know the viewer and her arm is sort of like raised like she's shielding her eyes from the sun she's wearing a bathing suit she's sitting on the beach and like looking out at the ocean Mm -hmm. and immediately like the emphasis put on that painting is like Mm -hmm. Okay, I like understood. Something, I need to, yeah. I, I pay, need to attention, pay attention right. to that. <laughs> right. And he's like in there and he's like, oh, you know, being Barton Fink. Um, and he hears loud laughing, right? That's what mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. And he calls downstairs to complain that his neighbor is being too loud. And it's like, he, like, it's like he hangs up the phone and then it's like, knock, 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 knock. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Cause it's, he hangs up the phone and then you hear the phone in the other room ring mm-hmm. and then like, you know, Charlie Brown voices and then hang up and then thunk, 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 thunk footsteps. And then outside of Barton's door, knock, 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 knock. <laughs> yeah. So it's like yeah. Chet totally threw him under the bus. <laughs> yeah. Chet was like this motherfucker who just came in this weird New York type. Right. Uh, <laughs> in the room right next to you <laughs> in the room right next to you to the right not to the left um <laughs> complain that you're being too loud and yeah that's when we first we first meet him and you know opens the door and and i think that was the thing is because he did he he says something that he's like did you call downstairs about me well and it's and he's like holding his head in this way where it's like he's got a headache and like he's presented in this immediately ominous threatening way and he's like did you call down to the it, that's yeah. so funny because I didn't read it like that. Oh, really? No, because no. he's like backlit and his face is in shadow. And he's... no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, not the read I got on it, but interesting. Oh, uh, that's interesting because I, I mean, I would have thought that was like very clearly what they were going for. But I'll have to go back and watch it again and see if maybe I just read something into it. But. <laughs> Um, but regardless, you know, mm-hmm. like Barton's kind of like, well, you know, me, 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 you know, kind of nervously sort of admits to it. And then immediately John Goodman's demeanor changes. He's like, oh, I'm sure. Sorry. And he's just like the nicest guy in the world, you know? Yeah. Affable. He, you know, is like, let me make it up to you. He pulls a bottle from his pocket and he's like, mm-hmm. let's have a drink, blah, blah, blah. Comes in, introduces himself. He is a traveling insurance salesman. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, it goes from that. And then he goes to the, then he goes to the studio meeting with this like really bombastic studio exec where Mm -hmm. you're like, what's happening. And then this actor is not the studio exec, but he meets Tony Shalhoub, who is like, Mm -hmm. I was so blown away by how, how young Tony Shalhoub looks in this movie. As as Giesler. Right. Yes. Yes. The producer. Right. Yes. Slimy beyond belief. And he tells him to go uh, hook up with Richard Mayhew or sorry, William Mayhew. Right. Yeah. And he, he goes, well, just as, just as the whole delivery was just like, yes, <laughs> you know, what yeah. do you need? A fucking roadmap? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, everything is like an assault in some way, shape yeah. or form. And whether that's like an assault that like slithers in or that like, you know, hits you in the head with a two by four, there mm-hmm. isn't anything that is like welcoming. Even well, the like, thing that should be welcoming, which is, you know, the studio exec, like putting on this picture of like, yeah, writer's king and blah, 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 is still like, oh my God, like what's too much. happening? And, and, you know, there's little signs that like, oh, there's another side to Lipnick, the studio boss. Cause like, you know, he's so welcoming to Barton and we love you, but you know, he's got his little assistant. That's just like, has that little gesture, like, okay, time to leave, you know, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and even uh Giesler, the producer, cause, cause Barton has been hired to write a wrestling picture, quote unquote. 
you know, in this Giesler, who's a under contract studio producer, uh, is assigned the job. And uh, later, when Barton kind of admits that he's stuck on the script, Giesler's like, you know, this is a problem because Litnick has taken an interest. Mm-hmm. He's shown an interest in the project. And we were led to believe, like, this is a bad thing. Right. <laughs> you don't yeah. want him to show an interest. Right. You don't want to be on his radar. Exactly. Can you talk a little bit about like studio contract type of thing and like what that meant? Yeah. So this is the era of vertical integration where basically studios owned every aspect of production and distribution. Mm-hmm. So the studios owned the studio. You know, they had the writers, the the producers, the directors, the actors all under contract. They literally sort of stole from Henry Ford the assembly line approach. So movies were made as like like they're on an assembly line. Mm. Um, and then the studios owned the movie theaters too. And so they they would right. just put the movies out into their own. So they it was frankly a monopoly, which of course <laughs> they got sued like at the end of the 40s. Um mm. with and it ended vertical integration, basically broke off the distribution movie theaters from the production. Mm. That was kind of the beginning of the end of the quote studio system. Mm-hmm. And the studio system, but basically it was is like if you're under contract, if you're an actor for MGM, you only acted in MGM movies unless MGM would loan you to another right. studio, usually with some sort of like MGM would get paid something. Right. But if, if you, you had are, like a friend at Warner Brothers who was like, I've written this thing and you'd be great in it. It was like, well, well, not only that, you didn't get to pick what movie you're in. Like, yeah, and it didn't yeah, matter yeah. how big a star told. you were. You went where the studio told you to go. Yeah. You know. Um, I think as you became like super huge stars, uh, they had a, a bit more say. But it probably wasn't like, I'm going to go do whatever I want. It was like, I don't, I maybe don't want to do Miracle on 34th. Right, right. Exactly. And I want to do Philadelphia Story instead. Or yeah. And if you became known for a certain thing, they would like milk the shit out of that. So yeah. like, Betty Davis was known for a certain kind of thing. Catherine Hepburn was known for a certain kind of thing. Humphrey Bogart was known for a certain kind of thing. And they would just kind of keep putting you in these movies over and over again right yeah it was the same for writers writers were like the bungalows where uh wp mayhew is kind of set up like that was a real thing like you just the writers had their office that it was an eight you know nine to five job and it was whatever movie the studio wanted you to write they'd be like all right we need a script for a wrestling picture or whatever Mm -hmm. in a week so go write this fucking thing Right, right. And so you, then, were, you were, it was really kind of being a hired pencil. Right. So this whole like shining Barton on about we want that Barton think feeling and blah, blah, blah. That's just to get you in the door. Right. Once you're in the door, you are under contract. To turn you're, out wrestling pictures. Yeah. To turn out what they want you to write. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's I mean, the world he kind of like from Broadway, he kind of stumbles into this world. Right. You know? And for and it's and it's it's an interesting thing too, right? Because he's coming from Broadway, which is so like, you know, it's like celebrated, like what he's doing. And you know, like we were just like writing about the common man and the the mm-hmm. you, you know, if anybody knows anything about Clifford Odets, he he wrote a lot of like labor plays. Right. Um, waiting for Lefty, uh being one of his most famous ones, which is mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's a labor play like it's, yeah it's very because I mean, he was union play he was essentially a socialist i think mm-hmm. like which is very much barton's thing and like you know clifford odets was like again i think a new yorker from the streets of new york kind of mm-hmm. you know one of those scrappy you know pre-war jews from new york 
mm-hmm. uh, the Jewish leftist kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Barton, Clifford Odets apparently really did like kind of get sucked into the Hollywood machine. Yeah, himself. and he, he like yeah, and had had a you know some success doing yeah. so. Yeah, he definitely did. Had not nearly the dark experience that I think Barton does. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because it's just like nothing ends up for barton nothing ends up nicely he he no. meets mayhew and it's a huge disappointment and mayhew then, being based on william faulkner yes another contract writer at the studio yes yeah. and you know mayhew's a drunk i mean literally the first time we meet him he's puking his guts out <laughs> sorry about <dear. laughs> um yeah in a bathroom stall and you know doing that and then he meets the girl and that doesn't go well and he can't write the picture and mm-hmm. the wallpaper keeps pe- like, you know, falling off in his hotel room and he, there's a mosquito and it. like, it's just, it, that's why I was like, do you hate Hollywood or do you? <laughs> I mean, everything very, about this yeah. is bad. And it was an interesting thing to see, like an interesting juxtaposition to see the way that New York is presented versus LA and how it's flipped from how it usually is. Mm-hmm. You know, you, Usually the stereotype of New York is that it's brusque. It's all business. People are rude. Nobody gives a shit. It's a big city that's going to eat you up. And Los Angeles is presented as like the city of dreams and everybody's Mm -hmm. wonderful and there's sunshine and, and it's gorgeous and lovely and the people are pretty and they, everybody smells like oranges or whatever the fuck. Um, And it was, (laughs) it was interesting to see that that convention was sort of flipped because so much of what we see of Barton's New York you know, even down to like talking, you know, talking about his parents and his uncle and stuff mm. is like, it's this warm, inviting Cozy. Yeah. yeah, place that is like, yes, you're doing this thing and you have a voice and it needs to be heard. But even the though he's still and- like torturing himself because it's like you know, the inner pain to be a writer where you're that's, like, OK, Barton. But that's like- a very he yeah, he sort of proselytizes a lot about like the writer. And it's like, right. we get it, Barton. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, and it's very clearly that the the Coen brothers have dealt with writers like that because they have no patience for him. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's an interesting thing, too, is that, I mean, you know, he's the titular character in this movie, and you still walk away mm-hmm. kind of being like, I don't know, man, Barton, like, God, uh, he, he, figure it, it well, out. That's, that's where, like, the Coen brothers walk this line of dark comedy, black comedy, so in such an interesting way, because your, your feelings for Barton are just constantly constantly shifting between you're kind of feeling for him and then you're like rolling your eyes at him yeah and even that kind of feeling for him is kind of tenuous at best right he's not a likable he's not a likable person like (laughs) he's dour and you know i don't know that i don't know that barton smiles once in the entire movie maybe maybe a couple times talking to charlie because he went back to charlie he and charlie become buddies yes they do they become Um, fast friends and they spend a lot of time together you know they they (laughs) sorry I'm going to jump to the end real fast when the cops are like, do you guys have some weird sex thing? (laughs) And Barton goes, no, we wrestled. Um, (laughs) Which is just like, it's the same thing, bruh. Um, um, Yeah, but what is the guy who's like, after he says, no, we wrestled, he's like, you sick fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. But you've got like, you've got John Goodman's character, Charlie, right? Well, Charlie yes. slash Herman Munt. Yes. So I guess we can get to that and the spoiling of it. So sure. he, he, 
So Barton, I'm trying to remember how this goes. Cause again, it all felt like a fever dream. He goes right. and he has like a lunch or, or a meeting. I don't know. They're outdoors. It's like a weird picnic. Like a with picnic with Mayhew, Mayhew and Audrey. Audrey, Audrey and the nameless girl on the beach are like the two women in the movie. Right. And Mayhew, Audrey is Mayhew's secretary. Quote. Yes. Secretary, but they're together and she's been ghostwriting everything for him because he's right. A, he's a drunk. Yeah. Uh, like ring out, you know, again, puking in the bathroom mm-hmm. at a like midday lunch meeting drunk and so they go to this meeting that's outdoors and may stumbles off singing some song that i think is like vaguely racist mm-hmm. um it's and- all about cotton picking and yeah <laughs> I mean, yeah. he's very clearly Faulkner, Southern writer. You know? Yeah, 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 very much so. Um, Audrey and Barton end up in bed together. Mm. And also one of the weirdest sex scenes ever. Right. And <laughs> not because it's weird, but it's just, you know, it, it goes and it like pans away from them. And then you hear some of the most awkward moaning I've ever heard in mm-hmm. my entire life. And then the camera goes down the sink Right. Train. So instead of the train into the train tunnel, you get the camera down the sink. Right. But also, tunnel. I think that, um, okay, two things about the camera down the sink train. Because mm-hmm. we also get a couple other shots sort of like that, like staring down the, the bell of the trumpet uh, at the USO dance. Uh-huh. I think we get these black void spaces that the camera will either go down or peer into. And again, mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit like looking into hell. Yeah. Like there's... And so that's my first point. Uh, my second point is I 100% stole that for Dead Billy. Uh, if you watch Dead Billy, I have a lot of that kind of thing happening. And I remember even, I think I made my cinematographer, Corey, watch Barton Fink and said, I'm basically stealing this. <laughs> he was like, okay, Scotty. Yeah, um, we get it. Right. <laughs> yeah. So then the next morning, they're in bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barton and Audrey are in bed and that stupid mosquito is flying around which keeps stinging Barton so he keeps showing up everywhere with like these big mosquito bite welts right and that's a kind of a constant like mm, but, sound yeah. you know that you hear as well which is also unsettling and the mosquito lands on Audrey's back and Barton slaps it hard mm-hmm. um, and when he pulls his hand away there's like a little splatter of blood but Audrey doesn't move which is yes weird doesn't react and that's when we discover that audrey has been murdered Mm -hmm. does it show how she was murdered you get a very quick shot it looks like she's been kind of split down right there's just there's a lot of blood a lot of blood right which is all you know like it's so funny because i feel like that convention shows up in a lot of things where it's like Mm -hmm. i don't know we were together and like we had some drinks and then we came here and we fooled Mm -hmm. around and then i woke up and they were dead and i'm like how the right (laughs) what's what it's very much like a, 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 a film noir kind of convention. And mm-hmm. I think that's very much like being referenced by the Coen brothers here. Like, yes. And in this movie, because this movie is so weird, I was like, well, obviously, like, obviously right. she was murdered in the middle of the night. Right. <laughs> like, clearly that's what's happening here. Yeah. But like a similar thing happens in, uh, I guess, spoilers, if you haven't seen it, the flight attendant. And I'm like, how the fuck? Right, right, right. Yeah. Did you no, not? Right. 
like nothing. You didn't notice <laughs> anything. Like what the hell? Uh, same yeah. thing with American Gigolo, which is, we can talk about that a little bit later on. So I have a new episode to watch that. I'm very excited, <laughs> but same thing that I'm just like, what, ha- like the blood, like you didn't feel the blood. Like what? I mean, I think like in the flight attendant, it's like, oh, she was so fucked up and wasted, but like, that's clearly not the case with Barton. No. Yeah. He's not drunk. No, that you just have to suspend disbelief and be like, everybody was so tired. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, from, who knows from when all the, last the fucking, time, right. who knows when Barton got laid or if he's ever been <laughs> <laughs> before this right. So wakes up dead and he's like, Oh my God. And he calls, he calls Charlie, Charlie and he's like, you got to come help me, which is, I think one of the funniest things I, this is always funny to me, even though a lot of times it's like, you know, indicate something bad happening, but when he goes to his room and Charlie's like, Hey, like barely opens the door right. and he's like, I did this. And he's like, let's go to your room. And it's like, what's in your room, Charlie. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so Charlie comes, helps him dispose of the body. Mm-hmm. Smacks him a couple of times. Smacks <laughs> him a couple of times. And is like, you know, get your shit together. And, and then quote has to leave for a work trip. Yes. And leaves and leaves a box of a box. his stuff for yes. Barton to watch. It's just just like a box, like it's a, like a grocery like, brown paper right. wrapped box. Uh, similar the- size box to the box at the end of seven. If you right. see where we're going with this, but that's also never revealed, is it? Or is it? It is. It's through dialogue. Um, Kevin Spacey says it. No, 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 no. Sorry. And Barton. Oh, Fink. and Barton Fink. Um, no, it's it's very strongly left to. Right. It's all very like, here's a, here's a here's a box that is roughly the size of a human head. Right. But you, there's no mention of it anywhere. It's, anywhere. it's okay. never said for sure. Okay. Um, but when you know <laughs> this short- movie is i'm just thinking about the listeners being like what the fuck is this movie yeah. about <laughs> <laughs> it really is i mean it is it's a it, it is and particularly once audrey's dead it, like that fever dream feel just escalates yeah um and then you know not long after you know he's visited by a couple cops who tellingly i don't i forgot to write down the names but one of them has a german last name and one has an italian last name it really interesting. I'm going to look them up right now. Yeah. Let's see. Oops. I'm at the light. I'm at the, I'm in the IMDb for our second movie. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Detective Deutsch. Deutsch, which mm-hmm. means, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Detective Mastrianati. Yeah. So again, just think time period, you know, on the mm-hmm. eve of World War II, mm-hmm. you've got Italy and Germany coming together. And these guys clearly don't like Barton. Right, immediately. Make some pretty anti-Semitic type comments to him. Like that's yes. You know, oh uh, the hotel about the hotel Earl being quote integrated. You right. know. Right. Um right, right, right. I do love the line where they're like, so so they they reveal to Barton that Charlie Meadows is not in fact Charlie Meadows, but actually mm-hmm. a guy named Herman Munt, also <laughs> a German last name. <laughs> and reveal one of the funniest mugshots I have. <laughs> yeah ever seen he's wearing like coverall or he's overall wearing, he's wearing <laughs> yeah he's wearing like overalls um and and like a you know a, a men's undershirt tank top underneath mm-hmm. and it looks like he was in the middle of like a yeah like yeah yeah <laughs> he looks yeah. unhinged right. in in the mugshot is essentially what what we're going for if we can get a still to snap onto the social media it is it, it is 
<laughs> it is equal parts terrifying and hilarious. And hilarious right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so they reveal that, you know, Charlie Meadows is actually Herman Munt, a mm-hmm. crazy psycho killer who, and this is set up earlier in the movie where Meadows talks about how cruel the housewives can be because he's got a weight problem. You know, you know, sometimes oh, people God. are just so cruel, so cruel. Yeah. He goes to these places and they're just so cruel, you know, and, you know, and he's all he's trying to do is sell them insurance, something that should yeah, be happy about. Yeah, give him something that he needs. Give and him then, something that they need. At another point, he points out that uh, he's got had an ear infection he went to the doctor and the doctor like charged him 20 bucks and he's just like to tell him he had an ear infection and he's mm-hmm. just like you know clearly not happy with his doctor and what we find yeah. out is that munt has killed a couple housewives and an ear nose and throat doctor whose throat <laughs> is mostly still there um <laughs> That's right. and we've been told that he likes to shotgun people to death and then take their heads Mm-hmm. so back to the box upstairs right, right 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 but i love the line when they're they ask him like they ask barton like is there anything you can tell us you know about your conversations like, oh he like i can't remember the actor but like oh he like blah blah blah's movies and the guy's like normally tell you there's nothing that isn't helpful but i gotta tell you that <laughs> isn't helpful <laughs> they're gonna see how he isn't writing it down yeah <laughs> the two just rudest fucking cops <laughs> yeah just the worst right. um yeah it, i mean honestly a perfect example of america's police system right. uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah so so now now we're aware that we're, we're putting things together about yes. who might have actually killed audrey right. what might be in that box right but also at some point during all of this right barton finishes the movie Right. Well, I, I think it's that night. I think just all the stress and everything, he has an epiphany. And, and in one night, he writes the wrestling picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and he calls his agent like in the middle of the night being like, I think what I'm working on is really important. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and his agent's like, good, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> good for you but yeah so he's real happy with this script mm-hmm. um and then what well, i'm trying and then I he, goes to, he, goes, he, goes, he to goes to celebrate he goes he goes to celebrate at the uso thing which also right. i just want to say that uh john Turturro is one of my i usually hate watching people dance on film mm-hmm. um because i think it's really super awkward i think my two exceptions to this are jack black and john Turturro because mm-hmm. they look like two people actually dancing there isn't any you know sort of veneer of oh i'm trying to like look like i'm a good dancer or i'm i'm trying to sort of you know do like move to a very generic beat john totoro is dancing his little heart out uh he's swinging (laughs) girls all over that dance floor left and right he's having a grand old time until he gets into a big fight with a bunch of Mm -hmm. sailors yeah, the well, because one of the they sailors like tries... the Captain, uh, the not Captain <laughs> Crunch. What is it? Um, <laughs> what is it? Uh, Cracker Jack, sal- right, Cracker Jack exactly. Sailor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, because one of them is trying to cut in on the girl that Barton is dancing with. Um, yes, which is rude. And Barton's uh, not having it. And then Barton goes on his rant about how he's serving by, you know, uh, through his writing and writing about the common man. That's how he's serving his country. Right, which is just read the room. That was not yeah. wise. Yeah, exactly. So you can't of course, tell a bunch of military folks that you're serving by <laughs> writing about the common man, Betty. Right. When we're getting into a war with Hitler <laughs> exactly. and the axis of evil or whatever the fuck. <laughs> right. 
um so yeah so gets in uh or starts a fight but then just kind of crawls away from it as everyone else is like punching i think that yeah the fault the fight just devolves into the entire uso hall is just brawling right exactly. the massive brawl and yeah barton just sort of like you said kind of crawls slash slinks away mm-hmm. and then that, he goes, so goes go ahead I think he goes back to the hotel, mm-hmm. right? And the cops, Deutsch and Mastrianetti or whatever, are back. Mm-hmm. They have broken into his room. They're reading his script. Ugh. And they've revealed that not only is Audrey, uh, well, they've, they've not only is Charlie Meadows actually Herman Munt, serial killer, but they know about Audrey and, and also W.P. Mayhew has also been murdered. Oh, that's and, right. And they're like, you didn't tell us that you knew the victim. And that's where they get into like, you know, did months, you know, did he teach you how to do it? Is this some weird sex thing? No, we were wrestling. You know, no, part. we wrestled. <laughs> um, and he says it like he's like, you know, take that. It was nothing yeah. but just some innocent men wrestling in a hotel room. Grappling um, Greco-Roman style. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes and is that when they're also like we couldn't get a hold of when did when does he mention when do they mention his family they don't uh charlie does later so <gasps> that's uh, right okay which brings us oh but first we need to talk about when he goes back to the studio and studio head is in that fucking well, military put a, costume put a pin in that because that actually comes after um, oh it does yeah because the because the manuscript the script is still in his hotel room uh-huh so he went out to the uso dance start a fight comes back and the cops are back they've broken into his room yeah and as they're talking to him and, you know, you're sick fuck fink and, you know, yeah. all that elevator dings. And this is when uh, Charlie arrives back. Arrives back. And yes. so do you want to just kind of describe what happens? So, but first before the elevator dings, they start noticing something, right? They're like, what there's, there's something. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't remember. I feel like that happens before because it's the smoke coming out of the elevator. And right. the oh, well, they're like, oh, it's hot. It's why is it yeah, so hot? Yeah, here? why is yeah. it so hot up here? Yeah, and all that stuff, which again, like descent into hell. And then mm-hmm. the elevator dings and Charlie's back. And I somewhere around here, the entire hallway bursts into flames. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's a crazy old hotel hallway, long ass hallway, and the mm-hmm. walls are on fire. And Charlie kind of comes tearing out of the well, he, elevator, he, right? He steps out of the elevator. And the guy's like, Munt, you know, put put down the policy case. Yeah, that's right. And he goes to put down the policy case, comes up with a shotgun. Yes, which is like, Sh- clearly that was going to happen. Yeah, of course. Shoots the one guy. Um, mm-hmm. The other guy runs. And then Charlie chases after him as the flames are going along with him. And he's screaming. Mm-hmm. They're like, I'll show you the life of the mind, which is. Is um, that what he was saying? I wasn't yeah. able to turn on the subtitles quick enough. <laughs> right. Which, which, <laughs> which, of course, is a callback to because uh, Barton is always talking about how he like his workplace is the life of the mind. You know, right. He's living the life of the mind. Right. So this is Charlie, you know, kind of throwing it back in his face. I'll show you the life of the mind. Um, he kills Deutsch. I think it's Deutsch. Shotgun blasted head. And before he does, he says, Heil Hitler, shoots yes. him in the head. Yes. And then goes back. And as the hotel is burning around them, has a little wrap up conversation with Barton. 
Yeah. Also, I think it's in there too, where it's in that, I think it's in that conversation where he's like, man, if they're not talking about my physique, they're talking about my added, my personality. It's oh, like, yeah. he says something like that. That's real. Like, oh, yeah. Cause just, they call you a madman. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I'm not mad at anyone, Barton. I promise I'm not. Yeah. Mad. <laughs> yeah. And still, even in that moment, again, like he has come tearing out of a, out of an elevator. The hotel is fucking on fire. And still for me, I'm like, I'm, this is this I just, is just I love him. I love I is, love John Goodman so much. This is why John Goodman was such perfect casting for this character. Is it's just you you can't help but love him. Yeah. So even after we've seen him be the monster psycho killer, murder these yeah. two cops, Heil Hitler, you know, the yeah. whole thing. He turns back into Charlie immediately. Yeah. Um, and it's this and even and even then I'm like sympathetic towards him when uh Barton's like, why me? And he's like, because you don't listen. Because he keeps every time he talks to Barton, Barton's just like talking over him, refusing as much as Barton like wants to write about the common man. He won't listen to the common to the common man. man. Yeah, right. And then again, this feels like a fever dream. How does he get out of the hotel? Yeah, it, I mean, it is very much because it doesn't make sense. The way the hotel's burning, they shouldn't be alive. But you know, we see the flames yeah. outside the room, but they're just sitting there having a conversation. Yeah, and they're then having Charlie, a full blown conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's not a short. No, it's a long conversation while the hotel is in flames. Right. <laughs> and then Charlie's just like, okay, well, if you need me, I'll be next door. And he goes over yeah. to his room. Yeah, yeah. And then That's Barton right. gathers up his stuff, grabs the script, and gets the box, the mystery box that Charlie asked him to keep. Which, why? Just leave that shit there. Let it burn right. down with the hotel. Um, And he gets the fuck out of there. And then now we're we're wrapping things up at the studio yes and when we go to see him what's the studio exec's name uh lipnick yeah he's in like a highly decorated Mm -hmm. military uniform which apparently i saw was based on warner who was like let's give me a military uniform and everybody was like yep i think that's true i've forgotten that but yeah like he was he like tried to enlist in some way and they were like Mm -hmm. no probably because you're old and then he was like costumes (laughs) wardrobe give me a military (laughs) outfit which Um, is i mean basically that's even what lipnick says where he's like enlisted but he's like well but you know i wasn't able to get the uniform time so i had wardrobe work this up for me yeah and it's like a ridiculously decorated like medals on medals on medals on it's very much like you know general Patton kind of yeah yeah Yeah, which is he's standing at the window like all stiff backed with his arms behind his back like you know suddenly he's the general right yeah and that's when he basically is like, you've screwed this up. Yeah. He's like, I got to tell you, Fink, this won't wash. And mm-hmm. then proceeds to go through all the reasons why Barton's brilliant script that he was telling his agent is like important and everything mm-hmm. is garbage. It's just, it's garbage. It's not what the studio was looking for. Right. Not what the studio was looking for. And that Barton has now is now sentenced to be a contract screenwriter, but he's not going to get anything done until he... Until you, you grow up. Until you grow up. Right. Yeah. And then. And mm-hmm. I think the last time we saw Lipnick, he was literally kissing Barton's feet in front of his swimming pool. Oh, I think you're right. 
I think so. Right. It's like the shift is obviously like it's a yeah, 180. which is just like I mean, I you know, it's, I I don't I'm not going to say that it's a plot hole because it makes sense within the world of this movie. Right. But you're like, how did how did how like how did he get the script? It doesn't okay. Just yeah. clearly, this is all like the absurdity of this. Yeah, entire exactly. Sort of like machine right. and then barton goes to the beach <laughs> carrying his uh head in the box uh-huh <laughs> and he sees a woman who is almost identical to the woman in the painting mm-hmm. in his hotel room and they have a brief conversation he says he that she's if, beautiful asks if she's in pictures and she's like don't be silly or something like that And then she sits on the beach and she mimics the pose in the picture Mm -hmm. and Barton is like watching her and that's where the movie ends. Yeah. Then roll credits. And I think at that point, you're really supposed to doubt reality. Like, I think there's an element of wondering how much of this is in Barton's head, like what's real, what's not real. It's really playing with surrealism in a way that's almost reminds me of like some of david cronenberg's films and even david lynch's films Mm -hmm. Uh, but with that like black comic coen brothers vibe to it Mm -hmm. yeah so i don't yeah i don't think you're supposed to take much of it really like at face value yeah i don't think that this is meant to be like realism no in any way right it's it's all pretty like I said, and, and and I keep saying that it, you know, the whole thing feels like a fever dream. And that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like I don't I don't no. mean that in like a demeaning way in this. It's it's all very like, yeah, I, I imagine that that's what going to Hollywood is like. Yeah, it's very it's very intentional. And I, I will say, as someone who has gone to Hollywood and had some of those meetings, now obviously different time period. We're not under contract at studios the same way. Mm-hmm. But this movie does play differently than mm-hmm. it did when I was in like college and watched it. And Hollywood uh-huh. was very much a theoretical maybe. Uh huh. Um, after I've been to some of those meetings and had work and worked with producers and stuff, um, there are elements of it that ring still kind of true mm-hmm. in that you do when you go out there and people are meeting you for the first time, they do blow a lot of smoke up your ass and you, mm-hmm. and you really have to take it with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. It is the most passive aggressive culture I've ever met because uh-huh. no one will ever tell you no or tell you this is bad or, mm-hmm. you know, what, like you don't get the like Jack Lipnick, like you got to grow up, Barton. Right. You don't get that anymore. Right. What you get is a lot of like, like if you, if someone says, hey, buddy out there, that means like you're about to get scolded. Like, mm-hmm. hey, buddy is prelude to here's how you fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um, if you hear the word maybe, out there that means no so it is it's just it is a very strange place because you can never i at least i never got to the point and i didn't have any traumatic experiences out there Mm -hmm. you know i mostly had pretty good experiences but it is true like you never quite know where you stand with anyone out there right and that's something that i think i feel like that had to come from the Coen brothers experience and they sort of channeled that into this yeah yeah and that's the thing like the entire thing feels very unstable Mm -hmm. it feels like at any moment things could turn and they frequently do Mm -hmm. but it's still not like it they don't present it in a way that it's like okay and then this is gonna go badly for him it's always like wait is it it oh god it did okay like it's always it's, it, it I think they do a good job of sort of putting you in Barton's shoes with that, that it's like everything is like, whoa, whoa, I'm like mm-hmm. dealing with a different kind of people out mm-hmm. here. Right. Yeah. 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 So 
that's the movie. Uh, just real quick. So I know you said. That's our super concise. I know. And streamlined synopsis of the movie. <laughs> but we've got a whole other movie to get to, people. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I think that was a fun discussion. I mean, uh, hopefully you guys have seen the movie and this wasn't all just like total nonsense to you. But like. Yeah. I guess we should we should have said at the beginning, go watch both of these movies. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then I you kinda, can listen I, to our discussion. I kind of said it, but it was okay. it was in the middle of a lot of things. But yes, okay. I'll put it in the show notes too. Like, go watch the movies before you wa- listen to this episode. Because I think neither of these movies are movies that like, they were both sort of well-known movies at the time, but I'm not sure how many people are watching them. It's not like Die Hard where everyone's watching them at Christmas kind of thing. Right, you know? right, right. Um, can I, I do want to ask uh, before we move on. So I know you said like, Coen Brothers are kind of not really your bag, which is totally understandable. They're they're mm-hmm. definitely like you're either on their wavelength or you're not kind mm-hmm. of. But what just overall, what did you think of the movie? Like, what was your general opinion? Would I you think, recommend it to people? Uh, <laughs> That's maybe two separate questions. Two separate yeah. Answers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So don't know. It's this is this is one of those things where like I like getting into um I like getting into I like what am I trying to say here? I like getting into discussions about works like this because while I did not enjoy heavy air quotes around enjoy the rarely movie. with a scotty movie recommendation are you going to enjoy it and like <laughs> but like i i mean and it's different right like i enjoyed the invitation like i was like that was yeah. like a fucked up experience but also like i like i enjoyed it mm-hmm. um and so yeah i i don't know that i would like what's what the, well the reason i bring that up is because i can sit here and be like i don't know if i enjoyed the movie and yet it is one i don't know if you're supposed to enjoy that movie <laughs> like, i don't think you're I don't supposed think that that's it, you're not supposed takeaway. to enjoy it in a typical like right and, and it's not going to give you like the Hollywood satisfaction of like, you know, everything right. wrapped up kind of ending. Right. right. Or like, oh, look, Hollywood is this like, you know, this glamorous thing that we should all be aspiring to or anything. Right. Like it's a it's a very it feels like a very like blood and guts kind of mm-hmm. reaction to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can say that I think that it was very well made. I think the performances are wonderful, especially mm-hmm. John Turturro and uh, John Goodman. Mm-hmm. Like, I think they're absolutely wonderful. And I think, yeah, I think if you're like, if you're interested in seeing something about Hollywood that doesn't idolize it, then I would say that like, you should watch this movie. If you want, like, mm-hmm. I can't even say like a dose of reality, but if you want, if you want like a bit of a bitter tonic to the saccharine stuff that usually gets mm-hmm. put out about Hollywood right? Um, to watch this, because it is, I think, and granted, I don't know how much of the movie is actually about Hollywood or if it's just sort of like the location that they chose mm-hmm. to have this story take place, but it's, it's definitely an interesting commentary on the industry Mm -hmm. yeah and i think i have i've not read this from the coens or Mm -hmm. anything but you just you know this is their fourth film you know they kind of came out of the gate very indie style in the mid 80s with blood simple and then they kind of had a big like hollywood sort of hit with raising arizona Mm -hmm. and then they followed that up with miller's crossing um but but they actually wrote barton fink before miller's crossing was finished right 
So really, this is like their follow-up to Raising Arizona, which was mm-hmm. their big Hollywood movie. They had to, at the very least, felt very unsettled about the world. You know, there were two Jewish kids from Minneapolis. You know, yeah, and I think that that, that's that's what comes through is not necessarily like fuck this and fuck this town and the stupid industry and right. it's a machine that gobbles everybody up, but it is this thing of like I don't like. I don't, I don't know, know what, this, what is. this is. Yeah. And right. like there's part, there's parts of it that seem like incredible and beautiful. And also like other parts of it that seem like really rotten and, mm-hmm. and, and decayed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think it's a, I, you know, again, I don't know that it was their point to really be like, this is how we feel about Hollywood. But I do think that it's an interesting commentary on Hollywood. Yeah. You have to imagine it kind of some part of that had to have kind of bled through. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, okay, I before we move on, I do want to talk about how I see this very much in like the Jewish context. Mm-hmm. It's very much a Jewish film. Mm-hmm. Um, both in terms of the characters, but also the sensibility. Mm-hmm. Uh so obviously Barton is based on Clifford Odette's Jewish. Mm-hmm. They make reference to him being Jewish multiple times throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Giesler, the producer played by Tony um, Shalhoub. Tony Shalhoub is Jewish. Mm-hmm. Lipnick is Jewish. And mm-hmm. even the character Lou, who's Lipnick's like silent assistant. Mm-hmm. There's there's a throwaway line about Lou being Jewish. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of Jews. Uh-huh. Lipnick, is, Lipnick also plays real fast and loose with some Jewish slurs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I would quote, but I won't. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but let's just say uh, the Jewish slur that starts with K. Um, I like how, I like how you were like. Let's just say <laughs> what it is in case people don't know. Right. Well, you know, we talk about the N word. Yeah, this is the K word. So. Mm-hmm. And like I said, Lipnick, Lipnick and Giesler are very specific Jewish stereotypes, mm-hmm. and it's interesting seeing them come through the filter of a couple Jewish filmmakers. Mm. Um, if you remember back when I was talking about Dutch Schultz, talking uh-huh. about the whole idea of the tough Jew, like uh-huh. they're in different ways, very much like the tough Jew, you mm-hmm. know, brusque and like no nonsense, take no guff kind of, they're very much like playing into this kind of stereotype. And I'm not, and I, I'll admit, I'm like a little unsure how I feel about it, but I feel like I have a lot of trust in the Coen brothers. I think you're not supposed to feel great about it. Like, you're not supposed to feel great about those stereotypes, but I think the Coen brothers are getting at something. One thing, in terms of the sensibility of the film that I feel like is very Jewish, is the the mordant, even, like, apocalyptic sense of humor. There's very much, like, a, a just a feeling of fatalism to it. Yeah. And one thing, like, and I would put myself in this category, Jews have a tendency to be very obsessed with anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Very, like drawn to stories about anti-semitism it's just it's very ingrained in our worldview um Mm -hmm. to be like on alert for that Mm -hmm. so to see the anti-semitism kind of coming you know obviously we get it from the two cops the german Mm -hmm. and the italian cop but even getting it from lipnik like it's interesting it's it's just that's an interesting dynamic there yeah so to me, the sensibility, like, it's just, it's saying, like, this movie is maybe the most clear distillation of Jewish pessimism that I've ever seen in film. Of just okay. that fatalistic, pessimistic, cynical yeah. worldview that, I don't, and I don't want to speak with too broad a brush, but that a lot of Jews have. Mm-hmm. And it's all, I really, I don't know that, I'm sure it existed before, but so much of it in, like, a modern context 
is really so informed by the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. So I think the fact that this movie is set on the eve of World War II. Right. We have the two cops with a German and an Italian last name. Mm -hmm. We have Heil Hitler. And there's even other little things that like, I hadn't thought about, but I was reading today, like all the shoes lined up in the hallway. Mm Mm-hmm where you never actually see the people, you know, they're putting the shoes out for Chet to come and like shine the shoes. Shine right? them. Mm-hmm. But that suggests Holocaust concentration camp imagery mm-hmm. in a way. So like we have this Jewish character, like on the cusp of this defining event in Jewish history. And like one thing about the Coen brothers is they're very literary. They're very literate in their way. They're very irreverent. Mm-hmm. Like they're very mischievous. Mm -hmm. But they also, like, know their literature, know their history, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, They know their Shakespeare and all that stuff. Barton Fink's kind of taking from the biblical book of Daniel a lot. Hmm. Okay. Like, there's one point where Barton opens a Bible and it opens to the book of Daniel. Uh Uh-huh. So the book of Daniel, like, uh, in, in broad strokes, the book of Daniel is about a Jewish exile in Babylon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Daniel, who's like a seer, who's basically in the court of the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and is basically tasked with interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's apocalyptic dreams. Mm. And if he doesn't successfully interpret these dreams, he's going to be executed. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, you know, just the exile in Babylon, Mm -hmm. right? And then if you think about, you you know, the book of Daniel is very apocalyptic, And this is like on the verge of a literal Jewish apocalypse, Mm -hmm. you know, because the Holocaust is just a few years away. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's like, it's what, like, to me, Barton Fink does what the Coen brothers, when the Coen brothers work, because sometimes they're just like too clever for their own good. I think it's Mm -hmm. kind of my, I can have the same problem with the Coens that I can with Tarantino sometimes, um, where it's just like, it gets too cute. It gets too like, oh, you're real impressed with yourself Mm -hmm. kind of thing. But when the Coens work, they walk this line between this mischievous black comedy and some really like deep things to think about. Mm -hmm. And they're pulling from history and they're pulling from literature. And, you know, there's just like, it's got a lot of levels to it that are maybe not uh, obvious on a first view. Mm -hmm. Um, Like even, uh, you know, the King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, uh, the book that Mayhew just wrote that he signs from is called Nebuchadnezzar. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's all these references to the book of Daniel throughout the movie. So yeah, it's just, there's a lot to chew on. I do want to say if you have the right sensibility, like you're talking about, like you didn't quote, enjoy it. Um, Uh but if you have like the right weird sensibility, it's actually a really funny movie. Like there's a lot that is very much that Coen brothers, black humor kind of. Yeah. 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 And I think that that's, they walk a nice line of like, like you said, doing something that's clearly, you know, on the precipice of something terrifying, Mm -hmm. but with just enough stuff that you're like, wait, what the fuck? Right. (laughs) What just happened? Yeah, well, even and like some of the you know, I personally find uh even though they are the two like most stereotypically Jewish characters, I find Lipnick and Giesler hilarious. Like all of Lipnick, like he's such a fast talking and like all just the the bullshit blowing smoke up Barton's ass. Right. It's like so over the top. And then like we said, Tony Shalhoub is Giesler is just with his like rah, rah, you know, kind yeah. of delivery is just it's just like note perfect for what they were going for. And you yes. and you really have to have the right actors to pull that off. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that is Barton Fink. Do you have anything else to say or should we move on? Let's move on. 
Okay. Uh, before we do, uh, speaking of Jewishness, I do want to just say uh, happy Rosh Hashanah, everybody. There we go. All right. So, like, Barton Fink isn't necessarily my favorite movie of all time, but, like, you've seen most of my favorite movies. I know you've seen The Thing. Mm -hmm. I know you've seen Goodfellas. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to make you watch Apocalypse Now again. No. But this one is your actual favorite movie, right? No, that's not my favorite movie. It is my favorite movie based on a book. It is, I believe, the most, it is the movie that is most loyal to the source material. Okay. The book is absolutely in the top three of my favorite books. But I also think that it is just, I think to know me is to know this movie. Yeah, and you've mentioned this movie a few times on the show before. Yes, so the movie is Like Water for Chocolate, released in 1992, directed by Alfonso Arau. See, I didn't even realize these movies were within a year of each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is a Miramax movie, and do you want to do the synopsis? Sure. So let's try to condense the synopsis yeah, a little I'll, bit, I'll, but I think I'll, it'll be easier for this one than it is. This for one's Barton a little Fink. like Barton Fink is so like all over the place. This one's a much more straightforward in a way, mm-hmm. but it's about a family in Mexico, mm-hmm. a mother, uh, like the worst mother in the world um, and three daughters. And the mm-hmm. youngest daughter, Tita has been told by her mother her whole life. Like you are not going to get married because you have to take care of me until the day I die. Mm-hmm. But it's her like, duty as the youngest daughter. Your duty as the youngest daughter to take care of me until the day I die. This is family tradition and we're not going to break it. But Tita of course falls in love with a handsome young fellow named Pedro, not the brightest uh, tool in the shed, but seems well-meaning in his way. And, you know, Pedro's planning to ask uh, Tita's mother for Tita's hand in marriage. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, Tita's mother says, no, but my middle daughter, Rosara, uh, she, oh, she's the oldest. Okay. I thought mm-hmm. she was the middle. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's, like, she's ready to get married. So Pedro ends up marrying Tita's sister with the not very well thought out plan that, like, at least I get to be close to Tita. Mm -hmm. um that's his idea like i'll agree to marry rosara so that i can be close to tita Mm -hmm. and then we just kind of track the life of this family through Mm -hmm. all their ups and downs and and the ups and downs of tita and pedro's relationship and of course her relationship with her mother and Mm -hmm. and then she falls in love with another man a very kindly slash somewhat creepy doctor (laughs) um (laughs) Uh, and so then it's like, who's she going to end up with? And all mm-hmm. those questions. And it's, yeah, it's, you've talked a lot about this movie. And I really, I, I went in purposely not reading a plot description or anything. I didn't want to know anything about it. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of not exactly what I thought it would be. So, yeah. So the, the big thing to know about this, well, yes, it is like, you know, the, this love story that spans <coughs> decades mm-hmm. uh, of Pita and Pedro's lives. It is also, I, I kind of hate this phrase, but um, I don't have a better one for it, but it's deeply uh, rooted in magical realism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um The book, when you read the book, each chapter starts with a recipe and it is the recipe of whatever dish is sort of at the center of, Mm -hmm. I guess, like the conflict. And uh, it should be said they're constantly eating or preparing food throughout. Yes. Like, (laughs) yes, it is. I've never seen so much food in one movie. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. And the magical realism sort of starts like from the beginning. The, mm-hmm. be- the movie begins with Tita's mother, uh, Mama Elena, and she mm-hmm. is she is pregnant and she is with the uh, the ranch cook, a very old woman named Nacha, when uh, Mama Elena goes into labor and it talks about how Tita was born. It talks about how they were cutting onions Mm. and Tita in the womb began to cry so hard that it drove her mother into spontaneous labor and Tita was born on a wave of tears mm-hmm. and that Nacha in the uh, in the aftermath of her birth let all of that all of those tears dry and swept up all of the salt and they cooked with that salt for years mm-hmm. so already you're getting a, a nice introduction in that like this is not a right. little historical drama right like most of the magic really does revolve around food Mm-hmm. Like the magic presents itself through food and food preparation and food mm-hmm. consumption. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was interesting. So one thing I will say about this movie is it sort of threw into relief for me, like the reasons why I don't really like Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> <laughs> back bringing, to that. Bringing it back to Edward Scissorhands, um, okay? I respect the, it. Yeah, because, you know, Edward Scissorhands is very much trying to be a modern day fairy tale right mm, mm-hmm. and it's very much trying to present itself as a fairy tale and it mm-hmm. like as we discussed it worked better for me on this most recent viewing than it has in the past but i still mm-hmm. feel like it's just it's trying so hard to be a fairy tale it feels sort of manufactured it feels very schematic in a way whereas like this i know it's you know technically magical realism but uh like water for chocolate has very much a fairy tale quality to it very much but so. it's so specific and s- there's like a warmth and a vitality to it that to me like all the things that feel manufactured and stilted in Edward Scissorhands just feel lived in in this movie. So. Yeah, I think it's it is. I think the I think the thing is is that this is so clearly Laura Esquivel, who's the author of the book, like she did such an incredible job with like building a world, and I truly cannot believe how well they were able to translate it to film. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is like you know like you were saying most of the magical realism has to do with food to give another example um tita because she's heartbroken that her the love of her life is marrying her older sister decides she she feigns sick and Mm. doesn't go to the engagement so her mother punishes her by saying you are going to help nacha make all of the food this is a mexican town Uh, you know, yeah. and they live outside of the town on a ranch. We should around, say it's like around 1910. Something around like that. 1910, Mexican Revolution is happening. Mm. Um, but so the night before the wedding, Tita and Nacha are up and they're making a cake. And it's like one of the things I also love about it too is that it's like <laughs> the sort of authenticity of what living and cooking in that time mm-hmm. must have been they're mixing cake batter in a bowl that's like the size of my table mm-hmm. um and they're it's cracking. like a clay bowl yeah yeah and it's a massive wooden spoon and they're beating the eggs into the batter and it's like a hundred eggs right um and you know because tita is having to make the wedding cake for her sister to marry the love of her life she begins to weep and she weeps into the batter and the next day at the wedding 
when the guests eat the cake, they are overcome with the sense of longing for the love, the loves that they have lost in their lives. Mm-hmm. And then everybody, and then they get violently ill. <laughs> right. They're all in a line along the river puking into the river. Just puking. Um, and it, it's the book, I will say the book is more graphic. Like yeah. Rosaura slips and like slides in the river of vomit. Like it's it's a whole thing. Yeah, um, they didn't they, like they could have really gone what the lard ass hogan story from uh, stand by me they could have gone that direction here but they yes they wisely chose chose not they chose not to but yeah so all of this stuff is basically how the food that tita cooks during the story essentially becomes a conduit for her feelings Mm -hmm. and i think that is like one of the one of the reasons why this book and this movie speak to me so much is because like like it you know my my feelings have always been very big and my feelings always like mm-hmm. you know like i there's something in me that relates to the thing of like crying so hard that i would be like born on a wave of tears or you yeah. know that like my heartbreak would go into the batter of something and essentially spoil it for everybody who ate it so there's a lot of like yeah there's there's a lot of magic that happens surrounding the food that tita makes for everyone in her family and i think the movie captures that really well that obviously i haven't read the book and i haven't seen the recipes and stuff but Mm -hmm. um i felt like there was just enough of that like they could have really overdone it i think in a way that probably would work better in a book it could have just been like one, you know, one recipe after another kind of thing mm-hmm. in the movie. But they they pick their important ones because you have the cake batter, mm-hmm. you have uh, the rose petals later, you know. And it gives like just enough of that magical realism without it kind of overwhelming the story. Yeah. And so there's that. And there is... And, and and it's and it's really funny because I was reading so it was some like high schoolers like Google review of the movie and I was like get the fuck out of here because it was like <laughs> my Spanish teacher made us watch this I'm like please like don't make us watch these terrible movies that are like soap operas anymore because like what even was going she like makes food and like people get sick and I was like I <laughs> just. Flames coming out of the side of your head. Yeah, Yeah. just like ready to reach into the computer and fucking like strangle this, (laughs) you know, fucking, I don't know, fucking... Oklahoma chick or whoever the fuck she was from. (laughs) Right. But, you know, and I think there's also, I mean, like it is... It is absolutely not a perfect love story. There is a lot of questionable behavior on everybody's part. But Mm -hmm. I also think it's something that like really... I think too, it was one of the first movies I saw that really, really, really clearly touched on the like familial responsibility that exists Mm -hmm. in Latino culture and Mm -hmm. that it is something that like is not escapable, you know? And so I think it's really easy to be like, oh, Mama Elena is terrible and Rosaura is an awful sister and blah, blah, blah. But like everybody is stuck in the roles that they have been Mm -hmm. birthed into. Sure. And there is no, there right. is no way to break out of them without like revolting, uh, which is why I also think yeah. it's interesting that the revolution is like the well, backdrop of it. Well, and I'm curious how you felt about this, because I will say, and this isn't a criticism of the movie, but there were moments that I found the movie infuriating. And I wonder if it's because I don't have quite that same cultural background, because hmm. there are moments with Mama Elena that like like in particular it's right after 
I think it's right after Mama Elena sends Rosara and Pedro away. Uh-huh. And then she's taking a bath. Mm-hmm. And she's just cr- criticizing Tita like relentlessly and the water's too hot and, uh, and you did this one uh, just let me do it and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. oh you burned my slip and i was just just cave her head in with the iron <laughs> just fucking like that's the movie i wanted in that moment is just mm-hmm. like just fucking murder her like i hated her yeah so much and i got that like there's a reveal that like you said she's kind of stuck in the role she had to play too and that emotionally penetrated me not at all like (laughs) at that point i had just committed to my hatred of her so much yeah (laughs) but i i i just i was never able to feel like back to the whole fairy tale thing like she's very much the wicked stepmother from cinderella to me you know yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so that like like i said it's not really a criticism of the movie but i wonder how that plays to you because it just played to me like i just wanted her to die Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic, but I also think that there's absolutely a cultural thing there uh, on, on watching it this time. One of the things that, because I think with the first couple of times I watched it, I was like, his mom is terrible. (laughs) And, you know, I grew up with such a, like a sweet, warm. Yeah. We should clarify that this is so not your mother. Yeah. So, and there's also a part of me that recognizes not just within my family, but also in myself, which is like the main thing I'm working on in therapy right now, which is this thing of like, you have to feel your feelings. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is something that is so present in mama Elena is that she Mm -hmm. has the grief of her husband dying the day that her youngest daughter is born, knowing that she is knowing that she is a woman in the early 1900s being left husbandless and having to run a ranch Mm -hmm. um, all on her own, knowing that her husband died. This is a spoiler alert that her husband died because he got news that the middle daughter here through this is not his daughter, but is in fact the product of mama Elena's affair with another man. Like there is the true love of her life. Yes. Who's the true love of her life. The responsibility and the obligations that mama Elena have like watching it now at my age, I can be like, this is like, you know, again, we're talking about like generational trauma, right? Right. Like over and over and over again. And again, with like Rosaura, like she is stuck. She is stuck. Well, and she starts buying into the same like stuff. Yeah. And she, and, and, and she, you know, she, her and Pedro end up having, they end up having two children. One of them dies, but the second child is a little girl. And Rosaura mentions that like, oh, she's never going to get married because she's my youngest daughter. And, and mm-hmm. uh, it's, it'll be her role in life to take care of me. And Tito's like, nope. right? yeah. Um, but that is a thing. And also, you know, to like, to be used as a pawn, um, to be married to a man that you know does not love you and as a matter of yeah, fact is in I've, love with your sister. I will and, say I felt way more sympathy for Rosara than I did for Mama Elena. And yeah, and I think there's so much stuff that is steeped in traditional roles in this mm-hmm. movie, mm-hmm. Um, which is also why, like, I deeply related to Tita when I was younger and read this, like, youngest daughter, of course, I have two older brothers, not two older sisters, but, you know, youngest woman, like, you know, constantly in the kitchen with my mother, the family, like, 
lore of cooking is clearly my responsibility to pass on Mm -hmm. (laughs) and to like keep that tradition alive. Like there was a lot for me to, to resonate there, but also I fucking love hit through this. Like I love her character so much and I, yeah, she was very much my favorite. Yeah. And to see the, like the throwing off of tradition that her through this mm-hmm. has, like even from the beginning, even before, you know, she hops on that horse, which right. is maybe I think, and I think that's one of the cool things about the movie too, is that like, there's all of this magical realism and the movie doesn't rely on a single bit of special effects. Right. All of it is done through like visual storytelling, which I think is yeah, absolutely like, very, very cool. Right. No, it's interesting what you're saying about the the tradition. And maybe this is why, like, I really responded to her through this her character and did not have any sympathy for Mama Elena and moderate sympathy for Rosara was mm-hmm. um, you know, I think about like my family background where I have two parents who in their own ways really rebelled against the tradition they were expected to adhere to. You know, my dad was Mm -hmm. raised Jewish in Cleveland. My mom was raised Southern Baptist out here in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even just in the act of marrying each other, like Mm -hmm. they were rebelling against the tradition and against the expectation, you know? And so like, it's never been put on me. Yeah. Like the responsibility of like, tradition of maintaining a family tradition if anything it's always been a little bit like we should question these traditions you know from when i was very very young so when i see people like caught in that it's so fucking frustrating for me because for me and i get that it's easy for me i just want to scream like you don't have to do this like why are you doing this you know yeah but that's again (laughs) that's me with a very different like background when it comes to that Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's, I just think, you know, again, so much of it is one of the things that makes me really laugh about this movie is how often something insane is happening and Mm -hmm. someone will be like, you need to go and do this thing. And the other person is like, okay, fine, but be quick about it. Cause I have work to do. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like Pedro goes to Tita and is like, I'm going into town to get the doctor because Rosada is in labor. And so please take care of her. And Tita is in a chicken coop. And she literally goes, hurry back because I have a lot of work to do. Yeah, And it's like, your sister's having a bit, like, it's just as likely that she's going to die as that she's going to survive. Mm-hmm. And I think about there's another scene when Tita sneaks into her through this room after she's escaped and she hears her mom coming in. So she hides under the bed and she witnesses that moment of Mama Elena like grieving for mm-hmm. the loss of this daughter. And she like sits there and she gives herself a moment a moment to like weep for this daughter that she lost. Mm, and then right. she comes right out of it with Tita, donde demonios estas? which is like, where the, like, where the hell are you? Mm. And it's like, I think that that is, it feels to me very indicative of this thing of like, there is unbelievable trauma, generational mm. individual trauma that we go through. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's shit that needs to get done. So right. we don't have time. Like we don't have time to make anything nice because nothing was made nice for us. Mm-hmm. And like, we've got to take care of business. And I think again, watching it when I was younger, I didn't understand why mama Elena was so awful to Tita. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I'm like forgiving of it now, but I'm or, just like, or this endorsing was also, it or, right. exactly. But this is also a woman who is dealing with sure. a, a lifetime of, 
of trauma and regret and pain. And she had no way to deal with it other than to like run a tight household. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I get all that intellectually, it just, um, like there was a lot that emotionally really did resonate with me, Mm -hmm. but that aspect of it is so hard for me to like put myself in a place where I can empathize with that. Mm-hmm. And it is because, like I said, I it, I just have, you know, I come from a background of like sort of rebellion being in like my DNA, you know, mm-hmm. rebellion against that kind of like those family expectations, you know, I mean, my parents went and got married in Vegas, you know, yeah, didn't well, tell their it- parents for like a month or something, you know, yeah. and so it's just like, like I said, I can, I can understand what you're talking about. And obviously I have an understanding of generational trauma and stuff, but my, and I think I even understood it as I was watching the movie, but my like emotional experience in that moment was like, run the fuck away. Run. Why aren't you running away? Well, but where's she going to go? I know. No, I get, I get it. (laughs) I totally get it. But, but just my, my, uh, the emotional weather inside of me was very, different yeah <laughs> and it's just because i'm again i'm coming from a different place and that if there was any part of the movie that i think i had a hard time connecting to it's that aspect mm. you know the stuff i did connect to and i think i did connect very much to tita as a mm-hmm. character and i think it's because like i'm waiting for that moment for her to rebel and you do spoiler alert you do get it you know so i was like i was with her just like rooting for her all the way through mm-hmm. and very much with her trudis like like i just loved her as a character yeah. and just the pain of like watching someone you love like they're so close to you but you can't like you know he loves you and you love him but just that wall is there yeah like that really like that did really resonate with me Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, you know, it's interesting because there's so much stuff about this that is like roles, right. That we need Mm to, I'm going to clarify, I'm going to clarify here through this is storyline very fast because it is. Yeah, we should. It's my, it's my, it's one of my favorite parts of the movie, Mm -hmm. but her through this is the middle sister. She is, uh, she is a redhead. Yeah. She's the one born of the affair. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and clearly from the get-go, it's already like one of these things is not like the other, mm-hmm. <laughs> like not yeah. just in looks, but in like everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, her through this is is like always encouraging Tita to like go and, and be in love with Pedro and, and mm-hmm. to follow that fucking bliss and do all of that stuff. She has no patience for Rosaura. Right. <laughs> she's, she's over it. And so Pedro and Rosaura get married and they move in to Mama Elena's home, which is not Mm -hmm. uh, uncommon in Latino culture. And they're living there. And Pedro comes to Tita one day and he brings her flowers to say, congratulations on being the ranch cook. It's your first year as ranch cook. Right, and clearly Rosara's hurt by that. Yes. gets up and walks away. Because he's like, he shows her none of that affection no and i like even like on their wedding night he doesn't even sleep with her i mean they've all gotten sick but he's like let's maybe you know hold off on that and like it shows them later on and she's like it's been three months like i think i think we're both over the sickness mm-hmm. and he kneels down and prays to god to yeah, be like i don't has- do this out of like want or lust mm-hmm. but to bring a child into this world to serve you which you know has to feel great right um <laughs> Yeah. As yeah. a as a newlywed. Well, um, at one point she's like, I think it's later, but she like tries to affectionately like thank him. I think he brings her food in bed. Mm-hmm. He's just like, You're welcome, and like leaves. Like Yeah. 
He's kind um, of a dick to her at least. But yeah, anyway. he doesn't. And I mean, you know, his dad also too, is they're like walking away after they've made this agreement that Pedro will marry Rosaura. His father is like, what, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And Pedro's yeah, no. like, it's, it's the only way for me to be near her. And again, not the most well thought out plan. But, not the most well thought out plan. But it'll um, go back to. Uh, but so Pedro brings, yeah. yeah, Pedro brings Tita a bouquet of roses, gives them to her in front of Rosaura, and Mama Elena's like, throw them away. So mm-hmm. she goes into the kitchen, and uh, Nacha dies actually the night before Pedro and Rosaura's wedding, but she sort of exists as this. Right. Um, like Tita hears her her voice in that moment of like, don't throw the roses away, make make this dish, which is quails in rose petal sauce. Right. And this, I think, is not exactly as clear as it could be, maybe. But it, but what is supposed to happen is that there are these light pink roses, and Tita like holds them to her chest, and in the doing so, the thorns cut her, and she bleeds, and her blood turns the roses red. So when you see the dish, it's like blood red rose petals. Okay, yeah, that the the whole cutting her chest and everything that came through, but the the color of the roses didn't. Yeah, because like literally, they're like pink and then they're red (laughs) so that's that's what that's about so she does this thing she makes this dish and essentially what happens is that as they're all eating it what happens to them in that point is that they start to begin they start to feel all of these like lustful feelings and because it's all of her lust for yes yeah she has put all of her like desire for him into this dish and you know everybody's eating it and it's already like this like you know sort of ecstatic dish that they're all enjoying a little hot and bothered yeah and and then essentially what happens is that her through this is in between pedro and tita as they're eating this dish and she becomes the conduit Mm -hmm. and she's she's like oh my god like she's starting to feel a lot of feelings she's like you know she's (laughs) she's pulling at her shirt and she's like you know can't keep her hands off of herself so she's like i gotta get out of here it's pretty hot the way the whole thing is i mean (laughs) there's an eroticism to it yeah i think that's the thing too is that the movie is deeply erotic but in in a way that is um certainly not dirty not dirty and it's not tawdry it's all this Mm-mm. very like it's it is such a it represents that like longing for mm-hmm. someone and, well, and, and longing just, in a way to like have every part of them right uh, it's just I very think it really well sensuous because yes. like there's the other moment i'll get back to gertrudis but there's another moment where uh pedro walks in as um she's she's rolling the mole. the mole and he looks down her shirt and sees her boob and there's a whole mm-hmm. thing about like her boob like a boob that has not been touched by lovers <laughs> just like useless dough basically mm-hmm. and his look turns it into like you it's know, like if yeah it, his his look at her and seeing her like that is like if you were to take that useless ball of dough and drop it in hot oil yeah um, and it's like and there's it's not a virgin breast anymore because of his look like yeah he was able to do that without even touching her yeah know? and i think i mean that's another thing too is that it's like it there's a lot of like poetry in mm-hmm. it you know like yeah so so it's like that kind of eroticism yes like, that kind yeah. of eroticism so her through this is like like i said she's pulling at her clothes she can't keep her hands off of herself she's like i gotta get out of here i gotta go cool down again ranch mexico 1910 so she runs out to the outhouse <laughs> <laughs> in the shower in the shower yeah and she's trying to like pour the water on herself but her she is generating so much heat that 
she lights the outhouse shower on fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and she's running. She like escapes this burning shower and she's like running through the desert. And right at this moment, there naked, is this. Yes. Naked as a jaybird, literally not a stitch on. And I remember watching that the first time. And I was like, she's like running through the desert. Like, how is she not getting like her? I feet, was thinking, you know? I was thinking goat heads. Yeah. Yeah. And at that moment, a revolutionary that she had like shared a very intense look with one day when her and and Chencha were in town, Chencha being a, another servant, just happens to be riding on by. Yeah. <laughs> and the dude sweeps her up, sweeps her up, sticks her on the saddle. And she's basically, stra- he's riding the horse and she's straddling him. And they ride off, ride off together. <laughs> I do love the line earlier, by the way, when she's in town with Chencha and like, I think Chencha's like, don't look at him. Like these men are of the devil. Like if you look at, like if you exchange one look with them, you become pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of, there's yeah. a lot of like really great stuff like that. Yeah. And the next time we see her through this is that she has come back home. She is now like a general. Yeah. It's quite uh, a bit later. Mm-hmm. She is married to the, the guy the guy that she rode off with. And it's very clear that she was like, she went out and she effed dudes and she did her thing and she got married and now she's, you know, running this troop. And And the only word that like the family had gotten of her was supposedly she was in a brothel. Yes. It was from the priest, which again, one of my favorite things is like, who knew how he knew. Um, Right. Exactly. Well, and and, I would say take it with a grain of salt. Yes. And that's when, that's when mama Elena is like, She's dead. Burns her birth certificate. All the pictures of her says that no one is allowed to say her name Mm -hmm. um, and disowns her in that moment. But she comes back and she, again, is is a driving force to be like, you need to go after what you want. And at that point, Mama Lena is dead. She's dead. Yes. Right. She had yeah. been thrown off the cliff. She did get thrown off of a cliff. Uh, yeah. They tried to, they tried to take her ranch and, and that, that scene is pretty like, Ooh, uh, that whole that, scene well, is pretty like, yeah, it, it really like kind of is, I don't know. I wonder how it played in the book because it's so, it's like a, such a shocking tunnel shift because these dudes like invade, like at this point, Tita is off at the mental institution. I think we'll, yes. which we'll have to go back to that, but yeah. And these dudes like invade the ranch and basically try to like, rape chincha i think mm-hmm. and uh, and they attack mama lena and mm-hmm. she gets thrown off of a cliff and mm-hmm. and it's just like so not the tone of the rest of the movie yeah i mean it is a it is a very it's a very brutal moment in the story mm-hmm. and i believe it's that brutal in the book as well it kind of has um, to be for what happens yeah and i think that's the thing is that it has to serve as the catalyst for for tita to come home and apparently in the mexican release that scene is not the scene of of the attack but rather there's a whole scene where tita comes back and she takes care of her mother before her mother eventually passes from her oh interesting yeah so it's like there to take care of her in death um and in the american release she comes back after her yeah yeah i don't i think uh, does she and she sees her in bed but like like she's laid out in bed no i think she's already dead Okay. Because she's wearing like a like a like a funeral dress, and Tita's like looking at her like laid out. But yeah. that's really all you get. And then it's yeah, like, yeah. Um, but yeah, it it had to serve as it, like everybody needed to come back, right? Uh, to wrap up all the loose ends. Tita gets she's like not it's she's not really in a mental institution. She gets sent away with Doctor John Brown, who I will say is doing a beautiful bit of speaking Spanish with. 
an like Americanized accent, even though he is right. Latino. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The actor's name is Mario Ivan Martinez. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and and Let's play uh, John Brown. Yeah. Dr. John Brown. And he he's the sort of like the local doctor. So Mama Elena sends Pedro and Rosaura away with their baby, their firstborn baby. Right. And the thing is, is that Rosaura wasn't able to breastfeed her baby. So Mm -hmm. Tita took over the feeding of this first child, Roberto, I think is his name. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that she's supposed to be feeding him like teas and that kind of thing, but she doesn't, she begins to spontaneously lactate. And so she is breastfeeding her. And this is because of the way that he looked at her and made it not a virgin breast. At least the movie (laughs) kind of indicates that. Mm-hmm. connects the two ideas yes yeah. um and so when pedro and rosaura and roberto leave the baby can't eat and so he dies and that news gets delivered and dita has a, a very visceral reaction to that mama elena is like be quiet get don't back cry. to work yeah right. don't cry and <laughs> they're making they're making sausage and Tita starts tearing the sausage apart. They're like, you know, stuffing mm-hmm. the casing. She starts tearing it apart. And Mama Elena whacks her across the face with a very large wooden spoon. And Tita takes off and she goes up to the pigeon coop and she's up there for a while. <laughs> she's <laughs> up there naked. And so she goes with Dr. John Brown to, and he basically rehabilitates her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when he has the conversation with her about the matches, which comes into play later. Right. Can we talk about John Brown real Let's quick? Let's talk about John Brown. Ooh, um, again, you're not yeah, organized. <laughs> no, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> if uh, Pedro is like the love of her life, but John mm-hmm. Brown is kind of the other guy that comes in. And I will say like I 80% liked him and was mm-hmm. kind of rooting for him because I did think Pedro was kind of a dipshit, like mm-hmm. fairly stupid. And John Brown seems very legitimately, like genuinely in love with her. I also found him a little creepy, like, cause he's right away just seems to like target her, you know, <laughs> maybe this is like, this is like maybe like post me too sensibility watching the movie. But I was just like, at first with him, I was like, Ooh, red flags. But then yeah, I mean, kind of softened towards it. Yeah. I think that might be like through the Scotty lens. Right. What's this asshole doing? Um, But it's clear that he's like taken with Tita right away. Mm -hmm. We won't get into the implications of whether or not he as a caretaker should be, you know, falling in love with one of his essential patients. But he was, Um, he was kind of in love with her before she was. Yeah, and that's very clear that he is he's 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 taken with her and right. um I think he genuinely loves her and he offers her I mean he offers her peace essentially, mm-hmm. right? Like he he's like I love you and I'm going to t- I want to take care of you and you know and I, like Tita at that moment I think is probably like yeah, that sounds nice. Like this is simple mm-hmm. and easy and it's not fucking like tormented and fraught Mm -hmm. and so she agrees to marry him and then mama elena dies and everybody comes back home and of course pedro's a little bitch about it (laughs) um and you know he threatens a whole bunch of things and tita is is like you know you're not going to do this you're not going to ruin this you know he basically pedro and tita end up sleeping together at one point and pedro's Mm -hmm. like i'm gonna tell dr dr brown that you're pregnant with my child and she's like i'm not so like Mm -hmm. you know you don't get to blackmail yeah you don't get to blackmail me with that but i think that's you know again it's like with everyone what we are talking about is a certain form of trying to break free from tradition Mm -hmm. even in terms 
terms of like mama Elena having to be the one to take over this ranch, you know? Um, and her through this is like, whatever, I want to be a sexual being and I'm going to go and do it. I'm going to wear pants and I'm going to ride a horse and be a literal revolutionary. Yeah. I'm going to be a literal revolutionary. I'm going to, I'm going to be in charge and I'm going to do all this stuff. And Tita, you know, is trying to break free from the tradition, this like ancient tradition of having to Mm -hmm. be the one who can't have a life essentially because of her birth order. Right. And it's like, it's interesting too. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff about gender roles in it. And Mm -hmm. like everybody in their own way subverts the gender roles, even going so far as to say like Rosaura, her gender role should be to be a mother and a caretaker. But she can't cook. But she can't cook and she can't feed her child and she can't be a good wife. Like who knows what Rosaura was built for had she not been stifled by traditions that were put in place before. And after Esperanza is born, you know, she almost dies in childbirth, you know, the surgery, like she's not able to bear children anymore. So it's just Mm -hmm. like all the things she wanted to define herself as because tradition dictated are kind of just taken away from her. Yeah. Yeah, um, I did feel bad for Rosaura. I always feel really bad for Rosaura when she comes to Tita and she's like, my husband won't touch me. He's yeah. repulsed by me. Right. You know, and it is like one of very, very few and might actually be the only one time that we see a sisterly relationship between Rosaura and Tita because mm-hmm. Tita's like, I, you know what, I'm like, I'm going to put you on a diet. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to give you stuff because she's like, I'm bloated and my, my breath is bad. And I like, ugh, I feel awful. And yeah, it's interesting. like, yeah, we're going to fix this. Because it's like she has some stomach ailment and it never really says what what it is. But I'm like, it's like stomach cancer or like what's going on here? It's like whatever it is, is like clearly serious. You know? Yeah. And again, I think it's another one of those things where it's, you know, there's a bit of like, again, with you the just, magical realism. You just go with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was a little bit like, and it's time for Rosetta to exit the story now. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, <laughs> we need to clear, clear the debris. Yeah. Um, well, that's part of that fairy tale quality too. You know? Yeah. Right. That it's like a, it ends up being what you think is going to be a nice and tidy ending. And, you know, at the end of the movie, uh, you see another wedding. And you're like, oh my God, oh my God, like they're together. They get to be together. And you find out that it's actually Esperanza's wedding to Dr. Brown's son. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's like a nice little moment because when you first see when Esperanza's first born and uh, Rosario's holding him, she's in bed and, and Dr. Brown is in there with his son, who's like, I think eight years old or something at the time. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. says something and they're talking in English because his son is like American. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just like, he says something about like, maybe I'll marry her someday or something like that. And that's when Rosario's like, no, no, she's never going to get married. She's, she's going to have to take care of me until I die. You know? Yeah. And again, I think that that's like a little bit of the, the fates and the magic realism being like, not so fast Rosada, like, Mm -hmm. ding, ding, ding. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, and it's, I mean, it's also an interesting thing, right? Again, we talk about generational trauma and breaking the cycle that it's like, it ends with Gita. Like she's like never again. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the movie, so we, we, go to the wedding we see that it's esperanza is marrying dr brown's son you see dr brown looking kind of sad and alone and he's there yeah this Um, is like 20 some years later yes 1934 i think yes and you know pedro and and tita are are older but still um you know incredibly good looking Mm -hmm. um and there's all this talk of like well what are you and pedro going to do now that you certainly like one of you has to leave and like what's going to happen and tita's just like get off my fucking back like i've had bitches up my (laughs) ass all my life like get out of here yeah and they Pedro and and Tita 
go to start to like be together They're you know, they're going to, to like consummate their relationship and Pedro dies mm-hmm. of a heart attack. I think they actually do have sex. And like at the moment of climax, he, he has a he heart dies. attack and he dies. Yeah. It's very Gerald's game in the way. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> Tita in another bit of magical realism remembers the conversation that Dr. Brown had talked to her about matches and phosphorus yeah. and all that stuff. So she begins to eat matches to kindle. I think it talks about how like she feels the light go out of her. Right. Because what is Dr. Brown's, he, he's basically telling her this thing about, was it like his grandmother had told him this, that like everyone has a, everyone has like a box of matches inside of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes over time the matches get wet and like the light the heat goes out of you and mm-hmm. talks about like how do you dry off those matches you know that yeah. inside of you and he basically this and this like there are a couple moments where it's like ooh, i could bring my like little horror movie uh interpretation to this <laughs> because he's like uh he's like and if you light all of, you gotta light them one at a time because if you light mm-hmm. all of them at once that much emotion coming out of you like you'll see this tunnel in front of you that's just like this tunnel of brilliance Mm-hmm. and it'll take you back to like the moment that you were born and see all the paths not taken and i was like the whole tunnel like the lighted tunnels i was like oh that's like some lovecraftian shit right there yeah but then like <laughs> but like the basic idea is is like you know keep that fire sort of maintained inside mm-hmm. of you mm-hmm. and it kind of suggests that like in the moment that pedro climaxes finally being with the love of his life no impediments Mm-hmm. he lit all of his matches on fire and dies because mm-hmm. it's, you know, he sees the tunnel mm-hmm. and like collapses. And so for her to like basically join him, she eats the matches to, mm-hmm. to stoke to, her fire, to and... stoke her fire and basically spontaneously combusts. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> in the book. There is uh, among the recipes is a, is a recipe for matches. Oh, um, nice. mm-hmm. <laughs> That's cool. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing is that the movie, at the very beginning of the movie, you see a woman, she's probably what, like in a 1950s, 19, maybe like 1940s, 1950s kitchen. Yeah. And she is, and she's, she starts telling, she's the one who starts the story about Tita. Right. Um, and I think she serves as sort of a narrator throughout. Yeah, she's narrating throughout. But you only, like, you only see her at the beginning. Beginning um, and end. Yeah. Yes. And then at the end, you find out that that woman is Esperanza's daughter. Right. And she tells this story about how when her mother, when she got back from her honeymoon, Mm-hmm. got back to the ranch it was just like burned to a cinder mm-hmm. like everything had burned <laughs> yeah but the only thing left was this book of recipes from yes. her auntie like her great aunt tita basically mm-hmm. so she's yeah. telling this she, family yeah. lore basically. yeah and she's continuing the story and continuing the traditions by making the recipes and mm-hmm. and all that stuff yeah i think it's it's interesting because the you know you're talking about the the matches and the overcome and all that stuff and that's actually where the title like water for chocolate comes from because it is in reference to like your emotions boiling over and like getting out of control. And that's essentially what's happening throughout the movie, right? With Tita, like everything that happens Mm -hmm. is because she has all of these like enormous feelings and she has no 
productive outlet for them other than the food that she makes for everybody. Um, Which I also think is an interesting thing as to why, like at the end, she's like the matches, like it's Mm -hmm. the immediate thought is to be like, okay, well, I just need to, I just need to stoke that fire again. Right. Well, and she even has the thing earlier, right before (laughs) Pedro like starts staring at her boobs through her shirt. Uh, But she's talking about like the relationship fire has to food and how fire transforms you know, dough mm. into a tortilla, and, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, and how, and it's a whole thing, right? That it's like these things are like fire changes things, right? Like once, once it is introduced, it can never go back, right? And so, like, not, I don't want to like be like, why is Scotty dwelling on the boob scene? But like, um, <laughs> <laughs> but like yeah. when when Pedro is like looking down her shirt, it's like the fire of his gaze is what turns her into this kind of motherly, like it's not a virgin rest anymore right and it's it is like i said i mean i think i think that there's you know i was saying earlier like to know this movie i think is to know me um Mm. yeah because i think it was something that like it was i think when i saw it for the first time which i think i must have been in high school and i can't remember if i read the book first and then saw the movie or if it was the other way around Mm -hmm. but yeah it was something that it felt like it it was it was the closest thing I had gotten to you know how how it felt like I felt things too big Mm -hmm. interesting yeah yeah I could kind of I could kind of see that now that you say that yeah it's interesting the things we like relate because like I think back to Barton Fink real quick like I saw that I want to say in high school or maybe even middle school and I immediately I I was like what the fuck is this movie because it is such a fever dream but I immediately was like very much without without I think thinking it through but like connected to like I said that Jewish fatalism Mm -hmm. um but also just the moment of when the dam breaks as a writer and it's just like you know and you're up all night and it's like oh my god Mm -hmm. this is genius like i felt that so deeply you Mm -hmm. know so i could see like knowing you how those aspects of this story would really resonate with you with like water for chocolate yeah and i think like the deep like you know it's deeply entrenched in mexican culture but there are absolute parallels to my life and my experience growing up. And so it just, it, yeah, I think it was probably the, probably one of the first times that I felt like I had seen something that like really represented me mm-hmm. and, and really specifically of like, what do I do with these feelings that seem to be too big for everybody I was going to say like, it's a thing that we've talked about, like, and obviously like I've seen memes along this line. So like mm-hmm. it's, it's a conversation people are having about you know women being told specifically women being told you're too much you're too big you know Mm -hmm. um and what does that mean to be too much and like basically like go fuck yourself if you think i'm too much kind of yeah um, yeah is the the, uh general consensus that i see on facebook and yeah but like (laughs) but like i can see how in a very culturally specific way this is a movie about a woman who does she feel too much or does she need to just have a way to feel that isn't you know isn't destructive for her, yeah well you know? and i yeah i think it's you know I, I think it's that and also like what i think is interesting about this movie and this story is 
the underlying message that like ignored feelings, they become this erratic, uncontrollable thing. Well, they burn you up. Yeah. And they burn you up. They create this like actual, you know, they right. create this, this heat inside of you. Weird and- parallel to Barton Fink. Cause I think you could almost say the same thing about the ending of Barton Fink with the fire in the hotel is it's like something uncorks kind of right. within Barton, you know, that allows right. that moment. Yeah. And it is this, you know, this sort of examination of, you know, society says that we can't feel anything too much that we can't, you know, we can't have these big emotions and yet it's deeply destructive Mm -hmm. um, or like, you know, it causes a lot of upheaval to not actually feel these emotions. Right. And again, you know, talking about the, the, the quick switch of like, you know, grief to, you know, anger or, Mm -hmm. you know, fear to like annoyance. You know, I'm thinking of the quote that I saw that said, anger is fear's bodyguard. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And just how like an emotion unfelt will alter sometimes irrevocably mm-hmm. into something well, else. Yeah, because it's like, again, it's it's like fire. Fire is change. Mm-hmm. And, the th- and I think like Water for Chocolate really gets at this. Uh, fire is like necessary for creation. And that's the whole like once you introduce fire to dough, it becomes bread you know Mm -hmm. um but fire is also destruction and like when when you don't tend the fire properly yeah when you don't let the fire kind of burn in a way that's containable Mm -hmm. um it's gonna just like go out of control yeah we're making Um, it sound way darker than it is but like without it being like a super dark movie that that is kind of the theme gets that you know yeah and i i think i mean i think that that's kind of the thing is that it's like yes it is a love story but it's also like there's definitely i think like fairy tale aspects to it like i think that you're right but it's not a fairy tale well like, it's a fairy tale in like a grim's fairy tale sort of way like kind of yeah like it's not it's not a disney fairy tale but maybe it's a little bit of like and this is why it feels like more honest to me than edward scissorhands mm. is it's a fairy tale in the sense of like you know the folk tradition of fairy tales which mm-hmm. are often pretty dark or yeah. that balancing between them yeah you know i mean obviously it's it's like more properly it's magical realism but you know from my right. non-latino viewpoint it just it struck me as a very real fairy tale in a way where like something like edward scissorhands is like something that really wants you to think it's a fairy tale right you know a couple of so i guess like where do you you know in terms of like your experience watching mm-hmm. it where do you kind of land with this movie well i really enjoyed it i i did like it i think like i said i had a couple barriers um that i could kind of tell were my barriers did you watch it let me ask you this did you watch it subtitled or dubbed subtitled i never watched okay. anything dubbed okay, yeah good yeah i'm not i'm not a fan of that unless it's an italian movie because they're all dubbed but that's a whole other thing but like i do think you know you know the generational trauma that you're talking about is very different than the generational trauma that like i've experienced you know yeah or i have experienced within my family Mm -hmm. um both on the on the southern baptist side and the jewish side you know and so i like i said i think i had an empathy barrier with some characters that felt a little unfortunate to me because mm-hmm. I was very aware that it was my barrier. Like I could not get past my just loathing for Mama Elena. And there mm-hmm. are moments where I think you're supposed to, and I couldn't. I think I was supposed to feel much more 
empathetic towards Rosara than I did. I have moments with her and I really like had my ups ups and downs with the love story. Cause like I said, I very much, even though it's not an experience that I've had exactly, but that feeling that unrequited love feeling, like Mm -hmm. it's so palpable in the film that you just can't like, it just, I felt that, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I just wish the person that she felt that unrequited love for deserved it more than pedro (laughs) well i think i mean i think that's i'm sorry go ahead so those are those were the barriers that i think i felt that you know maybe kept me a little bit more at a distance than like you would have um but like things like i just the world i loved the world Mm -hmm. um i really loved tita and i really loved her truda Mm -hmm. and like I loved the structure of the movie. I loved that kind of, like I said, lived in bulk retelling mm-hmm. feel. Also, the just the idea at the end that it's revealed that this is Esperanza's daughter and it's mm-hmm. someone relating family history mm-hmm. and how like you could interpret it like that fairy tale or magical realist aspect of it mm-hmm. comes from like the way family lore is told over time. Yeah. You know, things kind of get built up. So there's like a lot of stuff I really attached to. And I, and I felt like there's a lot of depth to it. Like Barton Fink, I felt like there's a lot of levels to this movie. Mm-hmm. I like the tone of it. Like it was, you know, rode that line between light and dark, I think mm-hmm. really well. It had dark aspects without ever feeling like a dark or heavy movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but there was just something about certain themes that I felt pretty distanced from. And mm-hmm. I had a hard time like connecting to, I think, yeah. the way someone else might have. So Yeah. Sorry, I was in the middle of a yawn. I also did, I again, just talking about the craft of it, I thought it was just beautifully shot. And I thought the acting was fantastic. Yeah. Like, again, just really, really great performances across the board. Yeah. A little bit of trivia mm-hmm. uh, about this movie. A young filmmaker visited the set and hung out for a little while because he was in a nearby town uh, mm. making his indie feature for $5,000. That was talking about, Robert yep. Rodriguez. Sure. He spent a little yeah. bit of time on set. Laura Esquivel, the writer of the novel, was married to Alfonso Arau while they made this movie. Huh. Mm-hmm. The actor who played Pedro is actually Italian. I did read that. Yeah. Yeah. Saw yeah. that his lines had to be dubbed. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how accurate that is, but also him and the actress who played Tita ended up dating for almost 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think they got together either like while they were making the movie or right afterwards. Mm-hmm. It was the highest grossing foreign language film mm-hmm. uh, at the time. And it was submitted for best foreign language film for the, I guess, 1982, 93 Oscars, but was mm-hmm. not chosen for some reason. I would love to know what the fuck it was. It was not like chosen to be nominated as the Mexican it was, entry? It was not accepted as a nominee. Huh. I wonder why. I have... sometimes the academy would have like if it had a tv premiere in mexico it could have been like you know disallowed who knows yeah who who knows yeah so i would say go and check both of these movies out again i think i think you know sort of what i was saying to know this movie is to know me i think that that's true in both cases uh, I think yeah, that, I think I think Barton. Yeah, Fink, if you had to pick a totem film for yeah. either one of us, this is this is it. Barton are, Fink might them. be like I've always said, "Stand by me," because uh, I really like deeply relate to that movie too. Except I relate more to the Stephen King novella, which is a lot darker. Mm. Like the movie's a little too sentimental to really be like 
my totem film but uh-huh. barton like if you could combine stand by me and barton fink mm-hmm. in some weird way <laughs> some tortured writer sort of way yeah um yeah i would agree gosh so funny stand by me scared the crap out of me when i was younger solely for the moment when they when they find the body yeah me too when i was really young when it first came out yeah yeah and there's something about i was just just saying i don't think i actually saw the movie i saw a clip of it so i didn't really know what the movie was about Uh and so just that image haunted me yeah no i remember seeing the movie and there's some something about you know the kid getting knocked out of his shoes Mm -hmm. and and i remember because i think they show them and i think they're like chuck taylor's their converse mm-hmm. and i was like how like wow yeah. they're lace-ups like how that, that's the thing that happens a lot in stephen king stories is people get hit, knocked out of their shoes i'm not sure if that's just a stephen king thing because that happens in um <laughs> pet cemetery too also makes me think of tom <laughs> hanks appearance when conan o'brien finally got the late night show mm-hmm Right. And uh, when he took over the Tonight Show, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. Is that what happened? Yeah. And Tom Hanks was like the first guest. Oh, and right. they did a whole thing where a big asteroid came out and hit Tom Hanks. And Tom <laughs> Hanks sold it so well that he like knocked his chair over and his shoe flew off. <laughs> if <laughs> you can right. look it up on YouTube, it's one of the funniest fucking clips. It's so ridiculous. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, guys, thanks for joining us on this really weird, disjointed conversation about <laughs> these two movies. Yeah. <laughs> I will um, put, I definitely will put in the show notes like uh, the people should watch probably try and watch the movies first because I do think these are like, they're not exactly obscure films, but they're not, it's not like we're talking about the Avengers or something. Right, know? right. So. Yes. Uh, it's not like we're talking about Die Hard and Edward Scissorhands. Right. Um, exactly. Yes. You know, the next time we talk about movies, maybe we'll be a bit more organized or maybe yeah. we won't. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's our podcast. We'll do it. We won't. Yeah, I guess so. Um, (laughs) Anyways, thanks for listening. And, you know, stay weird, stay curious. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.